Hey everybody, welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian. With me as always is Vince. And uh, joining us this week, the host of the Comic Syllabus podcast, the newest member of the Multiversity podcast family, our old friend, the returning champion, Mr. Paul Lai. <laughs> Hello, Paul. Hey, what's up? It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. Uh, for those that maybe are tuning in for the first time, we are a spoiler-heavy podcast. So if you haven't read the comics that were released this Wednesday, Ju- uh, June 28th, right? 28th? Yeah, it's not wrong, that's but that's correct. Uh, 2017, pause the podcast, listen, uh, go back and read them, and then come back and talk with us about it. But before that, we have a couple of real quick uh, news items we wanted to get to. Uh, Vince brought this first one to our attention. It appears that Warner Brothers is releasing a 30-disc Blu-ray box set of all the DC animated films thus far of the last 10 years. Uh, they're claiming 10 years is sort of the, the beginning point. So I don't know if that will include things like uh, Mask of the Phantasm or uh, any of the Batman Beyond mm. stuff. What was the Batman Beyond film called? Um, Return of the Joker? Oh. Yeah. Yep. Maybe. I don't know if it counts that stuff, but it, there is certainly... I don't believe it does. But there's certainly a lot to dig into there. But obviously, thirty different films. Um, are you are either of you guys big fans of the DC uh, animated stuff, or do you prefer um, the the sort of the older animated stuff like we talked about before with the uh, Batman Beyond and all that? Uh, Paul, where do you stand on this stuff? I haven't seen much of it to be honest. Um, I've seen some of it. I think I saw Dark Knight Returns and stuff like that, and it was interesting the way that they kind of adapted artistically to to cart- to you know animated films. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I'm not huge on this. Uh, although maybe this box set is an excuse to start. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? All Vince? I need all I need is another thing to binge watch. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Vincey? Yeah, I definitely prefer the the older stuff, but. I think with these movies, there are some incredible highs, and then there are some pretty low lows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the quality is all over the place, which I don't think you can say about. I mean, I think the Tim and Deanie verse, you know, back in the day was remarkably consistent. Um, these, yeah, high, highs and lows. Like, um, mm. I really liked the uh, the New Frontier, the version mm. of the New Frontier they did, mm-hmm. um, and a couple others that I I just I'm not going to sit here and think about, but uh, but then there were some some kind of bad ones, and I feel like <laughs> this is a running theme, but like uh, the one with Suicide Squad was yeah. pretty dire, um, and yeah, so so yeah, it's a it's a mixed bag of quality, but I think I think some of them that I've seen have been really really good. Um, yeah, I I just recently watched the um, the Judas Contract. The, the new uh, Teen Titans adaptation, and it was it was odd in that it kept some of the really bizarre bits from the comic, but it also took out some what I thought were very essential pieces of the comic lore. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, it was interesting. I, I it is not my favorite of those adaptations, but one thing I will say is that I feel like what they've been doing pretty consistently is trying to adapt. I guess what you'd call like the canon of DC stories, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, you know, the new frontier, dark Knight returns, the uh, Judas contract. These are, you know, some of the most iconic DC stories of the last 50 years. And so right. to have those adapted to an animated, uh, feature seems to make a lot of sense in terms of if, if you're trying to preserve sort of what makes DC DC, mm-hmm. 
but they also are not beholden to doing like a, a Zack Snyder Watchmen shot for shot adaptation, which I think is good uh, overall. Uh, Vince, do you know how much this this is going to run? People have they announced a price for it? I if they have, I didn't see it. Um, I kind of tried to scour. Like they don't have an Amazon listing yet, or at least at the time of recording, they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see that, but I've got a, I've got a guess. It's going to be like, if I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to guess. Uh, you know, the nearest price without going over, one forty nine ninety nine. I'm going to say it's going to be ninety nine ninety nine dollars. All right. But we'll Paul, say about go, right. You want to go one dollar to prices right us? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't lowball that. I'd probably go up on that. But I think uh, that's about. That sounds like what those MCU um, box sets were running about. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But I think it sounds like there's more here than any one of those. Yeah, third thirty movies. I mean, that's it's crazy. It is. It's it's excessive, but it's it's a thing. And What's I cra- just, I just figure they they normally run like I think. I think once they're not new anymore, they normally run around $10. And so, uh, you know, half of that for 30 movies would be $5 a movie. So one fifty, right? Mm-hmm. Did I do the math on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a genius. <laughs> What's weird for me to think about is, and this is the kind of thing that I just don't have access to, is how many more people know these canonical stories from these movies than from the comics, you know? Because my oh, frame yeah. of reference is always like, everybody knows this because the comics, right? But that's me, you know? Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. I do want, I wonder that about Flashpoint because mm. I remember I remember when the Flashpoint Paradox animated movie came out and I thought like, wow, that's really close, that, that's really soon off the back of kind of the New 52 and everything. And they were trying to move the, they're trying to skew the animated movies more towards that. Right. And I started seeing more people talking about Flashpoint, like referring to it as Flashpoint Paradox rather than just Flashpoint, Flashpoint yeah. as an event, even though the, the comic was originally just called Flashpoint. And so I feel like these do catch on mm. um, as for some sort of mainstream recognition of these stories. Yeah. I wonder if there are folks out there who love like the Flashpoint paradox and go back and read Flashpoint and are supremely disappointed. That that that's a bad example because Flashpoint's not a great story, but like you know, right. the Judas Contract or Dark Knight Returns, one of those you know iconic books. Right. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Uh, well, speaking of movies, Paul told us that uh, Patty Jenkins seems to be hinting at the fact that she is going to be doing Wonder Woman two, which I don't think comes as a huge surprise to anybody. But I think it's a move that if Warner didn't make, there'd be so many uh, terrible repercussions of that that they would never, ever hear the end of it. Um, Did you guys think there was ever a chance that she was not going to come back for the uh, sequel? Not a very big, not a very big chance. I I think... I think the only, I think the only way she wouldn't come back is if she wanted to move on and do something not superhero related you know but Mm -hmm. but i feel like i feel like all along dc had to know that you know they've struggled so hard getting a good review for (laughs) for these dang movies and finally they did i mean try to keep as much of that together as you can 
Yeah, I don't pay much attention to the Hollywood Insider stuff, so I, I would have no way to um, to <laughs> guess that one. But um, I I think I saw something today that uh, Wonder Woman's on the cusp of of topping you know box office gross for um, to- topping uh, Batman versus Superman. Yeah, you know it's so, it's, so that, it's on track to be the, ho- the most successful of this you know uh, this batch of films. Right. Mm. Yeah. So I'm wondering if they can get Patty Jenkins to do Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, they got, you know, by getting Joss Whedon to finish Justice League, they're hedging their bets in the, like, in the strongest possible way. Sure. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see the reaction to Justice League. If I feel like it's one of those situations, I think I might have said this in the show in the past, if it's good, every good part of it is going to be directly attributed to uh, Joss Whedon. And if it's bad, every part of it's going to be directly attributed to Zack Snyder. So I feel like there's no way to ever get a real gauge on sort of who did what, how the film really holds up uh, outside of the sort of uh, partisan squabbling of of the fans of those two directors. Yeah, that's rough because, you know, really sad circumstances. That, Absolutely. That led to that whole thing, so, but... Uh... I don't know. I'm I'm gonna watch it. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure we're all gonna watch it. <laughs> uh, and then the last little bit of news is uh, someone just dropped this into the Multiversity inbox a couple minutes ago. But somebody had tweeted uh, to James Robinson about Cable and sort of what's next for the book, and he said that he's back with DC. So anything that's happening at Marvel, he has no idea about. So we knew he was mm. coming on to Wonder Woman, but. Is it surprising to you guys that he's jumping with both feet back into DC? Hmm. I'm very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I that I mean that was one bitter that was one bitter uh divorce that we kind of saw very publicly. Hmm. And um I'm surprised that it got patched up with such little fanfare. Like, yeah, there, there wasn't even a press release about their re- reconciliation. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like the Wonder Woman announcement though was supposed to have like sort of an extra resonance for people, you know, because a certain segment of folks really don't know or care much about James Robinson except right. for very recent news. You know what I mean? Yeah. But for people for whom like you know um, Starman is is meaningful and all that kind of stuff, I felt like the announcement was kind of like a you know a silent implicit then uh you know yeah this is this is big so yeah no I'm, I'm excited about it i mean i think it's a homecoming you know yeah and it's a sign that they're as you guys were talking about last week when you guys uh, first brought brought up this announcement um that they're making some things right with some people that they should do right by so uh you know i actually didn't know too much about the enmity and and how that all played out but um you know he's done good stories at dc yeah. so the 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 rumor and he more or less confirmed this uh, when he was on my old podcast the hour cosmic which mm-hmm. was that um dc wanted to launch a second earth 2 book and he wanted to be on that book or at least be plotting that book mm-hmm. and they said no we don't want you on that book and he was still doing the main Earth 2 book, and he had been told, I guess, at the start of the New 52, like, Earth 2 is yours. You know, you can do whatever mm-hmm. you want with that. With that, And then he felt that they had gone back on their word, and that was why he left. Mm-hmm. Um, which is understandable. It's also, you know, it, maybe it might sound a little petty, but it's, you know, it's certainly an understandable uh, position. 
Right. What I'm interested in, and I need you guys to put your thinking caps on here for this. Do you think it's at a place with the two major publishers where if you're writing for one, you cannot be writing for the other? Like, has, has it become essentially an entirely exclusive experience? Because mm. doesn't it seem odd that, like, as soon as Rucka came over to, do, to DC, he hasn't done a single thing for Marvel? Mm-hmm. That it seems like everybody, even if they're not signing exclusives, everybody's kind of dropping their work for the other publisher. Right. Uh, the only person I could think of that has solicited books from both coming out soon is Christopher Priest because he's doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in humans miniseries, right, but, but right, do you right. think that right now it's it we're in a full on exclusive war? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, it it seems like they're uh, you know what what it, like DC's got these this really good sandbox thing going on, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but and so I feel like that's helping writers like Warren Ellis and stuff like that to to just hang around DC and feel super comfortable and then even sort of main universe people i think that that just sort of can um can do their thing within within sort of a territory that's marked out for them i wonder if that's part of the sell to james robinson you know to say we're going to respect you and and your ideas i think that that was it sounds like that was part of the sell to rucka um right we're we're not going to meddle right 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 and and i think marvel gives me the feeling right now that it's being piloted by this like you know very high profile team of writers um, and so I, I don't know, it, it may, it, it, to me, actually, it feels just more like DC's friend, friendlier pastures. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, maybe that's just the vantage point of a few news items of this moment, you know, I just think it would be odd for DC to approach Robinson and say, Hey, listen, we want you to come back, but to do so you have to thumb your nose at Marvel. Right. I, that doesn't seem like a great bargaining tactic for them. Right. But it's equally absurd if because Robinson, I believe, was Marvel exclusive, uh, if they let his exclusivity lapse and then took a like, well, we don't want you back anyway type mm-hmm. type position too, it just seems very odd to me. Mm. Uh, I don't know, Vince, do you have any opinion on this? Mm. Not not anything other than what you guys already said. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm I am furiously waiting. The James Robinson JSA book announcement. Come on, guys, make it happen. Yes, please. Make it happen. <laughs> um, all right, well, that, that was a nice little uh, short intro segment. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a second with more DC3Cast. Hi, I'm Paul, the host of the Comic Syllabus Podcast, a weekly show on the Multiversity Network of Podcasts. We read widely and we dig deep bringing different analytical approaches to our study and appreciation of the wide variety of comics out there. Along with comics teachers, critics, and creators, we do close readings of classic and current exemplars of the medium. And we invite you to join us every Tuesday here at MultiversityComics.com. So let's dig deep. And uh, we are back on the DC3Cast, and Vince had a fun suggestion for this week, which is that instead of going in our usual alphabetical order, we go in reverse alphabetical order, starting at the end of the alphabet and working backwards. So that is how we're going to do things this week. And so the first book we're going to talk about is Wonder Woman number 25. This is the end of Greg Rucka's run on the title. It is illustrated by Liam Sharp and Bilquis Evely. And uh, 
it, uh, to me, it's a really interesting place for the the story to end. But uh, Paul's our guest, so Paul, why don't you go first? What'd you think of this issue? Uh, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I feel like this um, Rucka run, you know, this is kind of like the capstone, and I feel like it was perfect um, because, you know, the, it was it's like an epic story. I, I feel like it's gonna go down as something definitive, right? And and just at the right time for Wonder Woman. Um, I, I feel like it's turned out to be the best move that DC has made in the rebirth, in my humble opinion, the, between this and, and Priest on, um, on on Deathstroke. But yeah, it was just like the perfect capstone because like, you know, everything leading up to this issue had already kind of been resolved and it had already been a, a very like full and a very lush story. I shouldn't say everything's been resolved, but you know, like the story kind of got completed with Kale and with, you know, Cheetah and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's kind of cool that in this last one, they, you know, what was left to be resolved was for Wonder Woman, you know, her own kind of rupture with with her her world. Her she had like a, this crisis of faith to deal with, and um, it was just kind of a nice way to round out to to cap off. I thought this this whole you know big story. Vince, what'd you think? Yeah, exactly. That was a really um, that was a really interesting way to to take it because. Mm-hmm. Um, the easy thing would have been for her to have an actual sit down with the gods or something, and then either either she's able to go back or she's not. But you put you know more of a more of a overt cap on it. Mm-hmm. But to have her sort of um, speak to this avatar of the gods, and to end on not an ambiguous note, but like a uh, an emotional um, <laughs> climax rather than an overt one or, uh, you know, right. like the button on it was pure. The, 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 the button that was put on that scene, the was, button, the button <laughs> that was put on that scene was purely, <laughs> uh, purely an emotional one. And, and that was such a really nice touch. Yeah. And then the, the, my favorite stroke, uh, master stroke of this issue was moving from that right into uh, her relationship with Steve Trevor and well, how the, the button was off. Actually. <laughs> Whoa! Whoa. <laughs> oh, filling in nicely for Zach with, yeah. the, the, with the sly sex joke. <laughs> um, but, uh, but uh, yeah, just, and then, and then having that be a completely different sort of content, look at Diana as a content person for the mm. moment. No, yeah. Um, this is a really nice, nice way to cap this whole thing off without some explosive conclusion and, you know, a really deft touch more than anything. Right. My, uh, my personal favorite part of it, and I, I love the whole issue, but I love that both Bruce and Clark noticed that she was grumpy. And I feel like that says so much about Wonder Woman as a character. Like, nobody would notice if Bruce was grumpy. <laughs> and, like, you know, uh, since the New 52, Superman has been, like, one of the most emotional roller coaster characters. Right. So people wouldn't notice if he's in a bad mood necessarily. Although, I guess since since Rebirth, they would notice maybe a little bit. But just the right. fact that they're like, wait, Diana, you're not, you're not hopeful right now. Something's wrong. Right. To me, that's right. such a wonderful exploration of what Diana means in the greater DC context. And it was just, it was so good. Um, it's interesting. We, we've talked a lot about this on the show, and I've talked about this a lot with uh, former editor-in-chief, current uh, 
friend of the site, publisher, we have lots of different titles for him, Matthew Malikoff. Matt's a huge Wonder Woman fan. And if you guys haven't read his Wonder Woman piece that went up on the site this week, it is well worth a read. Um, But Matt and I have talked about how there are a lot of good Wonder Woman stories, but there are very few, like, iconic, always kept in print, easy to find, easy to recommend, well-discussed Wonder Woman stories. And I feel like this has to be one of those now, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I, uh, I love uh, Matt's piece, by the way. I also endorse it for anybody who hasn't <laughs> read it. Um, but I, I have been a kind of a Wonder Woman collection chaser for a long time. And so, you know... More recently, it's it's been a glut, which is which is cool. But yeah, like how many of those landmark stories can you point to? The way you can point to so many with um, Batman and, and Superman, and you know, he, as he mentioned, so often there are ones where she's you know a, a role player in a bigger story. Uh, that's what we can remember about Wonder Woman. And I love that you know just to come back to what you were saying about Superman and Batman, I, I like them popping up at the end. It sort of reconnects her and this like very kind of intro wonder woman story that's been going on with uh you know reminds us oh yeah she's part of the justice league but in this issue they have um batman and superman kind of standing around and making space for the making kind of emotional space for what she's got going on just like you were talking about right mm-hmm. and, and I, I feel like rucka has very intentionally through this whole run including with what he's done with steve trevor done that which is to reverse what superhero comics tend to do with the relation between women and men where like you know usually women are there to facilitate men having their feelings their drama you know right, yeah <laughs> as opposed to the other way around and i just love that reversal and i feel like yeah there's just so many things like that that this run has so consciously done um that it's 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 kind of for me remade it's dealt with so many of the problems that have been part of Wonder Woman's history while taking picking up so many threads of what's been good about her story in the past. And it's like they took all these contradictions and conflicts of Wonder Woman's past and, you know, embedded them into the narrative and made it good. So, you know, like this is this is definitely gonna be my go to for years to come. I know there's a lot of people out there who were huge fans of what Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang did on their run. Right. And there's an equal number of folks who felt that that was not that that might be a good comic, but it's not necessarily a good Wonder Woman comic. Right. And I, I can I can definitely see both sides of that issue here. But I think it's it's interesting that we've gotten two incredibly different iconic Wonder Woman runs in a row right. here. Mm-hmm. And right. I I think it, what's equally interesting is that they've already announced that. James Robinson's run is only going to be six months. It's going to be a, a shorter run on the character. And I wonder if they, they've recognized that we've done you know, two big things in a row now. Maybe <laughs> it's true. time to do some, some smaller stories right. going forward. That makes sense. That <laughs> It's a little more marketable. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have to be an omnibus, right? Yeah. yeah. It reads really well as, as a you know 25-issue omnibus, but it is a big one. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Um, any any specific comments? I, I, I wanted to praise both Sharp and Evelie's work in this issue. I think both do really, really nice work here. Uh, Liam Sharp, he had been out of comics for how many years? It was, it was a fair amount of time, wasn't it, that he had not so, done yeah. a regular book? Man, that guy, if he's ever unemployed again, it, it better be because he <laughs> wants to be and not because of uh, 
publisher's not going to take a chance on him because he has just done such amazing work over the 12 or so issues he's handled here. Yeah, pretty timely too. I mean, I he never he never really missed a deadline, right? No, I think oh, yeah. the only mm-hmm. fill in we got was on the Nicola Scott timeline. Right. Number 6 or something like that. Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been super solid. You know, like maybe the best thing and I've loved both well all all three main artists on this run, but maybe the best thing is that, that I can say is that when I first saw it and even the the sort of um initial like preview images announced, I was like I know they're going to be two separate stories and if I know Rucky's going to try to weave them together, but just stylistically, how the heck is this going to fit together, <laughs> you know, because, right. because it's like mm-hmm. Scott was so kind of clean and 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 pretty and um, you know, the the Liam Sharp was just all this like, you know, gnarled weeds and like, you know, like that sort of like <laughs> monstrous veiny look. And mm-hmm. you know, I was like this just it feels like two entirely different worlds. And and the fact that this issue coheres so well with the kind of alternating of the art just kind of goes to show how how not how far they've come because I think they were already starting on fully formed but just that sense that like this story's canvas is big enough that it kind of could fit you know both styles together absolutely and I think that you know there's there's been this really nice uh, sort of separation of the two stories where one of the stories tends to be about Diana figuring out herself and one of the stories tends to be Diana trying to figure out the world. You know, there's, there's, there's sort of those alternating ideas. And I feel like in this issue, she both, by the end of the issue, she has more knowledge about herself and more knowledge about the world in which she lives. And it just sets up, I mean, this is this is essentially giving Shay Fontana a story on a T. Like, you can take mm-hmm. Diana anywhere right now. Right. There's not right. much lingering that you have to worry about. And that's such a great place for a writer to leave a character. Definitely. Yeah. Greg, Greg Rickus pretty good. Yeah, he is <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. I hope he's back on the DC book soon. I know he has said that he would, that he's certainly open to doing more at DC. So I hope that question. happens. Let's get the question. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, uh, maybe we should have mentioned this up top. I don't think it's big enough news. Uh, Scott Snyder tweeted that he just pitched DC on a Detective Chimp book. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I would love to see like a uh, like a, a, a crime-fighting anthology book. You know, where sure. you get like yeah. uh Detective Chimp storyline, a question storyline, you know, just, just various uh, DC uh, street-level uh, detectives. Nice. Let's they get, could let's call get Sean it, Martinborough back on that team. Yeah. <laughs> they could call it Investigation Comics. <laughs> Hi, hire this man. <laughs> uh, Vince, we're, we're, we're pimping you for a job at DC. I hope you like California. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it's gorgeous. Paul would know. The yeah. weather's nice. Come on. Yeah, come on out. <laughs> the weather's nice. They're gonna pass single payer health care, hopefully. Although it's not gonna happen. Thanks, Jerry Brown. Oh, uh, they, whole whole uh, other yeah. story. Whole other story. Um <laughs> No politics, right guys? No politics. Uh that brings us to Teen Titans number nine. This is the first 
issue of the Blood of the Manta storyline that picks up right after the uh, Lazarus contract crossover. This is written by Benjamin Percy, illustrated by Koi Pham and Phil Hester. And uh, there's uh, there's kind of two competing storylines hap- happening here. One is Jackson Hyde's uh, emergence as the newest Teen Titan, and one deals with the young Wally West's uh, rejection from the Teen Titans uh, Paul, have you been following this book? Is this a book you've been enjoying? Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny when I read this, I, I'd forgotten what happened before Lazarus Contract, which feels like a million years ago. It does. Um, but actually, there's that simulation at the beginning, you know, the where um, Aqualad is learning to fight. And so just kind of seeing Ra's al Ghul again kind of brought me back, like reminded me of what all this story was, you know, all, all that first arc was about. And I got to admit, like, I was kind of a sucker for that first arc. Like, I really liked it. And, you know, it's, it was pretty cheesy, the whole around the campfire and, like, uh, you know, like reconciling with the evil in their past or their lineage or whatever. Right. But, um, man, it, it, it got me. So, like, this issue where Damien is talking about legacy and, you know, like, whether it's a, a burden or enslaving you or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I think this pulled me back into that where the previous few issues have kind of, um, I, I don't know, it, it, you know, I wasn't hugely intrigued by Jackson Hyde, but um, I think the thought about this being a team of, you know, sort of people with, um, <laughs> with it's like teenagers with a past to, re- to, to reconcile or to deal with, um, that, that takes me back to a lot of the like Wolfman and Perez Teen Titan stuff and, and, you know, the emotional pathos of Raven and, and Starfire and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of thumbs up on that right now. Vince, what about you? Yeah, I am loving this book really. Um, I I love that that Jackson Hyde's being given a uh, kind of front row seat in all of this because I feel mm-hmm. like in stories past we haven't gotten to know him well enough. You know, he was always kind of I'm thinking back to like Brightest Day. Um, he was always kind of teased as this next character they were going to build up a little bit, and they never got to it, and then they shelved him for the New 52, you know? Right, right. And um, to return to him and to start fleshing him out and really keep him in the forefront is is good, and they're getting me to care about him. I think they're putting the work in that it takes to get you to care about a character that hasn't been around. And um, and it's, it's, it's kind of working for me, and... Uh, and I and some of the other like sort of relational thing relationship things that they're doing with uh, young Wally and Raven and um, they're giving Wally reason to leave the team for a while to go be with Deathstroke, and, but I I like the little emotional climax that he kind of has with with Raven where you know there's things things left unsaid kind of <laughs> and uh, and I think that's cool. Um, and Koi Fam's art continues to be good. Uh, it was a little bit wonky. Like I feel like, I feel like maybe this issue was a little weaker than others. Mm-hmm, you, you could mm-hmm. you could tell that there was a sort of a fill in with him and Phil Hester, and it was kind of not the complete Koi Fam that we had been getting. But I still yes. like his, I still like his designs and things. Um, like mm-hmm. it's very much a youthful book. It's not trying like the visuals are not trying to be any edgier than they need to be, and. Um, the only the only weird thing I wrote in my notes here is that um, 
Jackson's mom like is proving that she can manipulate water like he can, so mm-hmm. that all of his powers aren't necessarily coming from uh, Black Manta, uh-huh. you know. But why why does she make like a nude, homunculus <laughs> water doll out of him? Like, <laughs> dear son, I made this naked <laughs> Ken doll out of water. I also feel like she's being pretty like ostentatious about it. They're they're out in they're public in and diner, yeah. and she just and, like she just like check this shit out and everyone everyone in the diner would be like what the fuck's happening like you know and she's just uh you know it's very odd. Yeah. Uh, she also looks way too young to be his mom, but that's a whole other it's a whole other story. Um I I do like what this book is doing with Beast Boy and I didn't like Beast Boy in the first couple of issues where he was playing more of the tortured celebrity, but that I think that was weird. Yeah, it's almost like that didn't. It's almost like that never happened. Yeah, they, they've just sort of swept that under the rug. Um, one of my favorite things about having Beast Boy on the team is to be able to have him become a dinosaur and weird stuff like that. You know, it's a lot of fun. So this book feels, for the first time in a long time, like it's a Teen Titans book that is written for teenagers that doesn't sound like an old man trying to write like a teenager right. like I, I think some of the scott lobdell stuff felt like uh you know you could just clearly see that he was he was trying and failing to be the hip young linguist or whatever and that just wasn't happening so it's nice to see a book that feels more true to the characters and not necessarily uh pandering in any way uh, yeah. Which actually leads us really nicely to our next book. Are we ready to jump there? Yeah. Which is uh, Supergirl Being Super. This is the fourth part of this miniseries, written by Mariko Tamaki, illustrated by the great Joel Jones. Uh, I feel like every time we talk about this book, we just gush about Joel Jones for a solid <laughs> five minutes. But goddamn, look at what she does in this book. So good. It's so, so good. good. Um, so what do you guys think of this final chapter? Paul, why don't you, uh, yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been kind of telling everybody I know, like, that don't don't miss this one. Because um, I, I love Mariko Tamaki for her non-superior stuff. I, I'm pretty impressed even with what she's doing at Marvel with Hulk. Um, but I, I just think that, you know, actually talking about Joel Jones being perfect for this, like, I, I could have imagined Tamaki writing, like, a, this kind of troubled teen story, right? Mm-hmm. And then having somebody draw it who is more of like a sort of cartoony or cute and i bet we would have found it like relatable but not but without the kind of gravity that Mm. joel jones brings to it because a really good point yeah and and so um it just it's just like all the heaviness feels real um and like you know my my teenage self that's you know somewhere in my lizard brain kind of connects to all of that that really powerfully um, but I, the one, probably my one complaint is that I felt like the climax happened too quick, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. uh, it's like a spread. It's like a, you know, that two page spread. And then I guess I, at the, afterwards I was like, um, you know, that's it. <laughs> like, did the big thing happen? You know, and <laughs> it, I, and I, and I guess what that means is that she decided, they decided to spend, you know, um, like six pages on the emotional reconciliation and not feel like they had to do the action set piece super huge which is probably fitting but i i, I did feel a little bit like wait did that end already you know like i i, I felt know, the exact same thing yeah <laughs> i actually went back and reread number three because i was like wait a minute was there more of this like 
am I forgetting what happened in number three? So this right. is more yeah. the resolution issue than the climax. But, you know, I, I think that means two things. First of all, I, I'm hoping that it means that these two will be doing another volume of this book, oh, um, yeah. which is, is a big hope. But I also think that they there was a conscious decision made. It's more important for us to develop this world and these mm-hmm. characters in a way where people can relate to them and have fun with them versus telling a specific story. That the story right. is almost second to the world building. And that is such an odd position for a miniseries to take, but mm-hmm. not an unwelcome one. Right. Well, can, can I suggest something about that? Sure. I still wonder, and we've talked about this with these sort of um these mini series that they've been putting two issues together essentially and giving them like the square binding mm-hmm. um i'm wondering if this started as something else and became this four issue sort of double sized uh mini series mm. and so it maybe that did affect the way that it ended or something um that's pure speculation but i th- i feel like I feel like there was more there was more going on here, more of an idea for this that ended up kind of going in a different direction once they decided to go with rebirth. Mm. Like that's just that's just the way that it sort of feels to me if I have to extrapolate, you know. Yeah, I think didn't you guys talk before about this maybe starting as like an Earth 1 pitch? Yeah. Something like that. Sure, yeah. I could see that, uh, yeah. Earth yeah. One graphic novels. I think we did talk about that. Yeah, or and even knows? it could have been like a pitch for the for the Rebirth Supergirl. Right. Yep. Could have been that. Yep. Um, I'm I'm wondering if maybe if they do get to continue this story, or if they want to, I'm wondering if they go towards that uh, new format that Scott Snyder was kind of talking about. Mm, mm-hmm. That melds writer and artist gives them a little more breathing room and. Um, well, we'll see. Yeah. Either way, I'd love to see both of these creators, whether they're working together or apart, on other DC books. Because uh, Joel Jones is just one of my all-time favorites, bar none. And uh, I'm really liking everything that I read. Whenever I come across a Tamaki book, it's good. So, yeah, <laughs> give me more. Yeah, definitely. Do you guys? Do you guys... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. No, go, please, go. Paul. You're the guest. Well, I was just going to ask if you guys know anything about the sales on this because, you know, I mean, one of the problems sometimes when you release something as a original graphic novel is because it's not sort of recognizable in the market. You know, it kind of disappears. It goes under the radar too much. And I'm really glad that they did this because it had time to sort of, you know, generate some noise and some steam. Like I've actually heard chatter at, at a comic shop of like, hey, have you seen this? You know, like go back and pick up issue one because – this was, I think, around when three came out. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I feel like, you know, along with what you were saying, Vince, um, just the idea of it as as a kind of pilot or experiment of, okay, here's something a little bit different, you know, releasing it this way. Can we test it out and see if it, you know, gains some momentum? And if so, you know, if sales bear that out, then that's awesome. Like, I would love to see more of this kind of thing. Yeah. I am furiously Zach looking is, this Zach up. Zach is our sales guy. Yeah, <laughs> Zach is usually sales guy. So. But he died, so. <laughs> um, one, one thing I thought was interesting is that uh, the take on uh, Kara's uh, parents um, mm. in this series, 
the the dad is the essentially the main guy from the uh, NPR Shit Town podcast. <laughs> he, does, he doesn't he doesn't uh, keep his money in a bank. He doesn't trust. He he coats everything in gold and buries it in his like barn. <laughs> He's that guy. It does. It does kind of play out narratively because by the by the end, she's like, you know, what brings her around is like not thinking of her Earth parents. It's totally like, you know, her Krypton parents, and then she's like, oh, okay, I guess I gotta help these Earth parents. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. There you go. All right. So the third issue of this series only sold thirteen thousand copies, mm. which puts it uh, just to give you an idea sandwiched right in between the Star Trek Green Lantern crossover and an issue of The Wicked and the Divine. Um, but I will say this. It's 13,000 issues at five ninety nine a pop, which right. means considerably more. Like, you know, for, for instance, I, I, I think for just about everybody who, who follows comics, we can say Jeff Lemire is a huge deal, right? Right. Issue two of Royal City was $2 less than this, and sold like 700 more copies. Right. So this right. is slightly underselling Royal City. That's not a bad place for this book to be. Yeah, no. and I feel like th- this is one of those books that they talk, they point to all the time that like, you know, this is going to do way better in the book market than, right. you know, the, the things above and below it on the diamond charts. So. Yeah. Mm. Uh, anything else to add before we uh, move on? I, I, I don't want to move on to what's next. <laughs> uh, well, Vince, we all have our crosses to bear in life, and ours right now is to talk about Suicide Squad number 20, uh, written by uh, Rob Williams, illustrated by, I'm going to butcher his name again, I did it last week for Aquaman. Um, Stepan. Stepan Sejic. Sejic. All right. First of all, Sajik is great. Yes. Let's just get that out of the, out of the way here. Sajik is great. Let's hope he, uh, as Vince texted me yesterday, I don't know how he's supposed to be doing both Suicide Squad and Aquaman right now, because his, his art seems pretty labor-intensive. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so hopefully this is just a one-time appearance in Suicide Squad. Well, he's no, he's solicited for like the next two months. Is on he both, really? On both books. What? I, you know, you know they're gonna change. You absolutely know they're gonna change. But right now, like I was just going over my pull list for next month, and he's solicited on all these books. Jeez, wow! He is super fast. I think when he did, like I think he did Aphrodite, whatever, and um, you know the image stuff he did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was pretty consistent actually. I think he has also. I, I think I've heard or read somewhere that, like, I think he and his wife work together on his work. Okay, um, if I'm not mistaken. So, but yeah, he's been super consistent, which is astonishing considering the level of his work. Yeah, oh, so great. Yeah, and you hope that with the way that DC has been handling the rebirth uh, release schedules, that right. they know, like, if they knew that 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 Aquaman arc was coming up, they could have started him on that six months ago. You know, uh, hopefully they're working that far in advance. I don't think they necessarily are, but you know, it's nice to dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Cedric's art was really uh, very nice here. I also really liked in the uh, Killer Croc Enchantress section how they're walking through New York 
in love and everybody is just terrified of them just yeah. screaming at them and calling people to shoot them and all that like i i thought that was actually a really fun touch uh mm-hmm. bravo rob williams and the last nice thing i'll say about the book and i promise we can shit on it as much as you guys want to <laughs> is um i think one of my absolute favorite characters of rebirth has been cosmonaut oh yeah yeah <laughs> the guy who just thinks peanut all the time right uh yeah, yeah he's great uh, it felt really bad for him in this issue he got he got rejected outright he did can i can i just pose a question to you guys before we even get into <laughs> sure anything when you saw the words who will lead task force x or whatever who will lead the suicide squad uh-huh. you like 100 percent knew where that was going right of course like yeah even though it makes no sense like it's got to be harley quinn because we can't <laughs> we can't have enough harley quinn right there's never enough uh, i will all, i will say too this much we all know that that those over-the-top characters, they need to be pushed to the forefront as much as possible. They need to be shoved down our throats, and that's how we like it, right? Like... <laughs> yeah. But I will say that in the in the defense of, of DC, her turn sort of in the front of Justice League versus Suicide Squad, I think was reasonably well-received when she was yeah. the only one to not go crazy. Mm-hmm. But they've done nothing to continue that. <laughs> so... <laughs> So know. this the problem with this book continues to be um like uh, they've they've there are some good ideas like you mentioned Brian and I actually thought like like earnestly making June into wanting to be a graphic designer and like trying like well she's a member of Task Force X trying to get her work out there and like advance her her actual passion like that could be potentially very interesting but like this book is want to do it takes it to cartoonish levels of you know like she's immediately rejected and she goes freaking nuts over it like in a in a really unhinged way that's obviously you know obviously that's what makes her a good member of task force x but it's just so over the top and loud and like Mm. trashy to me or just i i don't know it's just it's just too much there's a there's a there's a world where that idea and that reaction can work, and for whatever reason, this book is just go, pushing that idea a little too far every time it tries. Mm. Every time it tries for this over the top comedy, I find it really off putting and annoying. It just doesn't quite. It's not quite dialed in. Um, I mm. will say this: uh, Captain Boomerang uh, gets irritable bowel syndrome, which is the first time I've related to any character in this book. <laughs> <laughs> so finally a relatable situation more, more ips <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes yes <laughs> that's, that's what we need edit from editorial no from editorial yeah. more ips for reader relatability yeah. yeah honestly i don't i have no idea what's going on in this book because I, <laughs> but i do actually i do think that a lot of the humor seems to play better in this than some of the past issues. Like, you know, I, I, I've had the, the Rod, Rob Williams conundrum, you know, of like, hey, this guy's really good on 2080. You know, like, mm-hmm. why isn't this flying? But maybe it's the Sajic art who I feel like his stuff just, like, humor plays so much better with him. Like, some of the, the moments that I kind of chuckled when I was sort of thumbing through this, I just thought if this was, like, 
you know, even Ramita Jr. or Jim Lee Art, I, I don't think it would have landed the same way. Yeah, yeah. yep. I think yeah, you, you nailed that, I think. So Absolutely. maybe if he, if he could go back and redraw the first uh <laughs> issues. <laughs> oh man. It's uh it's tough because Rob Williams his Marvel work I, I really enjoyed when he was he did the um did a Wolverine series, didn't he? Oh, for a no. while. Was it was it Weapon X? It was Weapon X or X twenty three, one of those books, and it was I remember being quite good. Mm. And then he did that incredible Martian Manhunter series. Oh, right. Yeah. And you know, I just don't I don't get how this is the same Rob Williams, you know, sort of the so, sort of the Tom King question, you know, like how is the same guy <laughs> who did Omega Man the guy who's doing this? Uh, but even more extreme, I feel like. I, I feel like Rob Williams on this book is clearly going for a tone mm-hmm. that we just don't care for. Like it, this is a conscious. This isn't. This isn't his. This is going to make it sound like he's not doing work that's true to him, but it's not his. I don't think it's his default mode. I think he is approaching, it seems to me like he's approaching Suicide Squad intentionally saying, I'm going to be loud, brash, and unapologetic about it. And the people that like that are going to love this. Mm. And I think people like us, it's going to be extremely hit and miss. Right. And for the most part, it's been miss. Right. Um, it seems like a conscious choice to me. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. All right. Well, that brings us to Mother Panic number eight, written by Jody Hauser, illustrated by John Paul Leon. Um, I feel like I'm at a loss for words whenever we talk about this book, Vince. Uh. I, I feel like it's a book that I don't think about at all hmm. in the three weeks and six days between when we talk about it. <laughs> uh, but each time there are parts about it that I really enjoy, there are parts about it that I'm forgetful about because i don't think mm-hmm. about it for for three months three weeks rather mm-hmm. you know um but paul what do you think of this comic i i uh first of all john paul leon that's <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean yeah. um it's just so good uh the art is so good i uh, i had a really hard time getting into it i think the first two issues i had to reread like a million times when i had the whole arc under my belt to just like remember like, exactly what you're saying to remember what's going on like I mean, even Violet, who's written to be a kind of like super distinctive character. I just sort of, I don't know, maybe it was intentional how difficult it was to attach to her emotionally, you know, which is obviously part of the character. Right. You know? But I just, yeah, I had a really hard time getting into it. Once I did, though, once I had a little buildup of momentum, um, I think the art has always kind of kept me in on this book, all, all, all three artists. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty into it now. Um, but it's just, it's super messed up, man. It's like, Mm, yeah, so dark, you know? So, yeah. It's, it's it's by far the darkest book set in Gotham and that's saying a lot. Oh yeah. 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 Sorry, Vince, I cut you off. Oh, that's all right. No, I, I, uh, I think for, yeah, first of all, John Paul Leone, I, I've always liked his work, Mm. but it like, it floors me to see his work in a book set in Gotham city that ostensibly has could have Batman characters in it, you know, Mm -hmm. because it feels like, like an underground comics with an X style artist, you know, drawing a bat book essentially. (laughs) And there needs to be more of that, I think at DC. And I love that, that young animals doing that. 
and I wish it would spill over into the regular books a little more often, you know? Mm-hmm. Even just a fill-in here and there, you know, like uh, in between arcs, you need an artist fill-in. Do a one-shot that's really weird. Like, what have you got to lose? It's one issue of a... I guess you have readers to lose, but... <laughs> but, you know, for for one issue, if, if, if the readers can see what's beyond it, you know, I feel like you could experiment for an issue here and there, but that's, you know, aside the point. This book... Um, I'm kind of with you, Brian, in that I do I do forget things that are going on. But then when mm-hmm. I when I pick up a new issue, and I read it, I find these little pockets that bring me back. So like, I completely forgot about her spine stuff. Yep. <laughs> from like, but then when when it happened, I was like, oh yeah. And then it, it the book really sold me on it too because how often do you see? a superhero with back pain, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and again, very relatable. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> three guys in their 30s are, are, are not in their heads vigorously at back pain. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. So, but like that really worked for me. And um, the, the sort of like insider look that we got a little bit more into her origin or like her early years mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and how really dark, dark yeah. and awful that is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I I go away from this book and I forget about it. But when I come back, I find these little things that that hook me in again. Um, I guess there's nothing that can be done about that other than, um, you know, just maybe rereading it down the road and seeing if I appreciate earlier issues even more. You know, mm. but but from a month to month basis, I I. I never get excited about reading this book, but then when I'm reading it, I think, oh, yeah, this is really – this is good. There's, like, good stuff going on in here. It, it it also suffers a bit from being the least immediate young animal book. Like, the other mm. three young animal titles are all such powerhouses, and this is more of a slow burn. Mm. And I think that, that that is working against it a little bit. Um, right. One of the things I really enjoy about the book is actually how there's a lot of commentary about – both in the book itself and in the backup about sort of manipulation of the media vis-a-vis like super heroics. Right. And I think that's, that's a very interesting uh, sort of line of, of writing that you don't see, you know, really ever come up anymore. So I enjoy that too. It's not a bad book by any means. I just wish that each month when I picked it up, I could more easily recall what happened last month. (laughs) And maybe that's on me. Yeah. No, I I think it does read better, um, you know, in trade or or as an arc or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Th- there's something. I mean, this is super. I don't know. Maybe reading too much into it, but you know, like what what I love about John Paul Leon's art is that it's really intentionally messy in just the right areas, and then there's all these huge spaces of like very very clean. You know what I mean? Like in the first pages, you can see like violets. You know, her room is a bedroom. It's messy, right? But her figure is very cleanly drawn, like no spare lines, you know? And I feel like that kind of art really works for this story because there's a sense of a very cluttered world, <laughs> which yeah, kind of leaks over into the storytelling, you know, like it feels very cluttered. But I think if you're able to read it, uh, especially, you know, several issues at a time, there's a kind of cleanness at the center of it, which is basically just all the crap that, you know, she's been through and all the anger that she's that carries her into her her activity, her quote unquote superhero activity, you know, mm-hmm. that um that feels very propulsive to me. Um 
but uh, I, I definitely feel you guys on the uh, week to on the month to month sort of <laughs> being lost. It's funny we've talked about this a little bit in the past, where I feel like before DC started shipping books twice a month, I never considered these sorts of questions because I was not reading a mm-hmm. lot of non-monthly books. So the monthly books kind of became the grind I was used to. But right. now that we're seeing these books twice monthly, and especially that we're seeing Gesundheit, whoever sneezed. Yeah. And and, uh, and especially now that we're seeing, like, you know, even the weeks that Action Comics is off, Superman is still going. You know, so we're right. getting these characters all the time that I think it, it makes it more noticeable when when a monthly book is dragging a little bit. Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, that brings us to the Commandy Challenge number six, I believe, right? Number six? Yeah. So half, halfway through the book already, yeah. Uh, written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by Philip Tan. Uh, Vince, I know both you and I have sort of uh, a little bit fallen out of love with this book, but we're also both big Steve Orlando fans. Did this issue rekindle your love for the series? Um, not, not entirely, although I think I was more interested in this issue than I had been the last couple. Mm-hmm. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, there's there was some cool uh, design stuff, and I really liked the way that Orlando resolved the cliffhanger from the mm. the last issue. And I say that because agreed. Uh, you know, it's sort of, he he used essentially like a 3D printer uh, that used that uh, <laughs> fr- generates from stem cells basically. Right. And I I just read a story the other day or I didn't read a story, but I read like a blurb from a story about scientists that are working on that very concept. And so oh, I, wow. I thought that was pretty cool. Like, I don't know if Orlando came up with that idea using his uh, science fiction prowess in his mind or, or whether he read like a similar story and decided to apply it here. But I thought that was some nice kismet that made me uh, a little more interested in this issue. And also that in the second half of the issue, it, uh, Commandy essentially encounters one of the dungeons from Breath of the Wild, the new <laughs> Legend of Zelda game, like this living, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but like mm. the the dungeons in that game are these like towering uh, sort of creatures that rise out of the out of the ground or wherever they are and they're these mm. big like titans, but then you go inside them and you have to anyway, anyway, it's exactly what happened <laughs> in this issue, you know, so I feel like this is like things from other media colliding in a way that interests me. And also I'll say um, we've given Philip Tan a lot of crap Mm. for his short little run on Hellblazer, which was like the most baffling art I've probably seen in a DC (laughs) book in a decade. Um, But I think we talked about like during Hellblazer, I think we talked about how like this is not, Philip Tan is like this style chameleon and he switches mm. like drastically between projects. This book looks nothing like those issues of Hellblazer and this book looked much better than anything that was going on with that book. So mm-hmm. there's either several Philip Tans running around and nobody's <laughs> telling or, or he just does things to keep himself interested and and I like this Philip Tan a heck of a lot more than that other one. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, Paul, what do you think of this book? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on the. I mean, I, I think sometimes I like Philip Tan, but I feel like his style is a little funny for Commandy, you know, because I'm just always thinking about Kirby. 
Yeah. Um, but then that I, I felt that way throughout, like sort of like begrudgingly, like Arr. and then I got to that two page spread of exactly what you're talking about, the whatever the the big bear city rock mm-hmm. thing. And I was just like, whoa, OK, I take it all back. Like, that's pretty <laughs> amazing. Um, but uh, actually about the cliffhanger thing. So I thought that this was like a, a, the whole commandy challenge was like this really intriguing notion, you know, like writers leaving cliffhangers for other writers to resolve. And one of the things I, I wondered about is whether there would be subtle messages or whatever. Now, this is all purely speculation. I'm not an insider and I don't know anything about these folks. But just from what I do know, and I may be overreading into it, like Bill Willingham and Steve Orlando are know, like coming from very different places. Is that fair? To say? <laughs> sure. Like, yes. That's a, nice, that's a nice way of, yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know anything about their relationship, but it was just really interesting that. You know, Willingham left a cliffhanger that was essentially like, you know, he's he's been gutted. I've literally ripped the guts out from Commandy. Solve this, you know? Yeah. And it felt almost like the solution where, uh, what's his name? The Tiger's shooting, you know, just kind of shoots a whole, threatens him at, at gunpoint, you know, fix this. Yeah. You know, with his 3D printer was almost like, oh, man, you know, like, come on. Can we just like dispense <laughs> with your cliffhanger that you left me? And then it became super intriguing to read Willingham's bit in the back, you know, where he says, like, oh, what I would have done, you know? Yeah. Which in which he seemed to, you know, obviously to be respectful of, of Orlando and, and Tan, but also to kind of say, like, yeah, I left something in there that was a solution and uh, you didn't do it, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> I just, I, I'm maybe just over speculating, but I just feel like, man, is there something going on in this uh, back and forth between the writers? Now, I'm so. not sure. I, I know that Orlando would know who was writing the issue before him. But I don't know if Willingham necessarily knew who was writing the issue after. Uh, uh, uh-huh, I, I don't. I don't know how it worked out. I know that the pairings were totally random, right. and uh, even like Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda right. Connor, Amanda Connor right. were paired up randomly on this. You know, so that's which is crazy. But yeah, right. so, um, but I, I think this is a brilliant concept. I think the idea of leaving the cliffhangers for the next creative team is super fun. As somebody who. Um, I, I've played in bands my whole life, and I love collaborating on writing songs with people. Right. And I feel like one of the fun things about writing songs is when somebody throws you a curveball you don't expect when you're writing with them. Like, oh, how am I supposed to get to this idea when there's this to deal with? And I think that makes so much better right. art when there is that push and pull of different people working together. And right. I think that modern comics, my biggest critique of modern comics is that it's all too safe. And it's all mm-hmm. too um, sort of like every, everybody's role is too cleanly defined there there's not enough people blurring lines between things anymore and i feel like this is a really fun opportunity to do just that and right. to change things a little bit so i think for conceptually i love this book i think month to month it's it's pretty hit or miss uh i happen right. to enjoy this story because i really enjoy steve orlando's writing and there was a lot mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. sort of i think orlando Orlandian things in here, you know. Orlando. <laughs> uh, so, like, you know, I really love Orlando when he's dealing with technology issues and huh. the idea of having this, like, robotic hive mind of a, of a civilization and the idea of the 3D printer, all that. Like, I think all of that is, is very, like I said, very true to who Orlando is as a writer. So I enjoyed those parts of it. Not the biggest tan fan in the world. I wouldn't call myself a tan man, um, <laughs> but but you know, but it, 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 he worked a right here. And uh, overall, I think that this will be very interesting to read 
in in trade. And I I, I, yeah. I I'm not trying to contradict what you just said, Paul, because I agree with everything you said about mm-hmm. Mother Panic. But I think the you should read it in trade argument oftentimes is an excuse for lazy comic making <laughs> it's um, my excuse for lazy yeah no, no lazy reading yeah i mean i i certainly use it as an excuse for lazy reading all the time uh there are certain things that do just work better that way but i think something like this where the novelty of how is he gonna get out of this jam is right. kind of undercut if you're waiting a whole month to see how that happens yeah i think it might be more fun to just turn the page and see mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you know to each their own any other commandy challenge thoughts? Mm, I don't have any, but I, I have Steve Orlando questions that we should carry into our next book. But Vince sounds like you're about to. Oh, I was just gonna say, Brian, you said you're not a tan man, dude. You're like the whitest guy I know. So. <laughs> oh come on, you are you are just as white as I am, my friend. <laughs> I don't I don't know myself though. Uh, a, a, as well as I should. Yeah, a poll from Wisconsin who has chosen <laughs> to live in Minneapolis. Yeah, that's that's, that's not white at all. Uh, I never said I wasn't. I'm just saying <laughs> it was a cheap joke. I had. I know. To make, so. I know. I all right, know. let's let's do. Paul wants to get to uh, JLA number nine. Writer Steve Orlando, art by Felipe Watanabe. Yeah, let's let's keep this Orlando train going. Yeah, Paul. What was your <laughs> Orlando question? No, actually, well, I was going to, so I don't have a lot of thoughts about this issue. I mean, it was, it was fine, you know, mm-hmm. um, I've been liking his, his whole Justice League of America stuff, but it got me thinking a little bit what you, you guys would say about, you know, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what a, a Scott Snyder is, you know, mm-hmm. and even like what a, a Tynan is, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to put my finger and on and, and, you know, um, Brian, you alluded to this. Like, what is a Steve Orlando thing? You know, what like what is his distinctive thing? Because so I like Supergirl. I like his Midnighter stuff. Um, I really liked his Image, you know, series. But I, I guess I'm just trying to grasp like what makes something Steve Orlando y. That's a really good question. Um, it, it's interesting, uh, and that's a phrase I overuse. It's interesting. It's not that interesting, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I've met Orlando a few times. He's he's an East Coast guy, and every year the Schmaltz Brewery up near Albany does a Jack Kirby birthday party in August. And Steve and I have been at a couple of these Jack Kirby birthday parties before together. And cool. I feel like when I've when I've sat and talked with Steve, he's very dry humor wise, and he's mm. there's a lot of sarcasm there. But he gives off the, you know sometimes people give off this aloofness, and they they give off the impression they don't care. He's the exact opposite. He's sarcastic mm. and he's dry, but you get the impression that he cares about every bit of what he does. Mm. And I feel like it's that attention to detail, to me, that is an Orlando thing. Mm. Like, I think that 3D mm. printer from Command Challenge could have been explained in such an, a simpler, less satisfying way by a lesser writer. But right. Orlando has his way of just the specificity of what he does, I think, is very important. And even on, even in this arc, you know... The idea of um, of this uh, this Justice League arc, I should say, yeah. of, of this of this character, you know, going through this elaborate plan to kill off his entire bloodline, like another writer would have had him come back to America and find the one person responsible for his mother's murder and kill mm-hmm. that person. Whereas Orlando has this like genocidal. <laughs> uh, scope to it because right. he's just his his work has this 
has this really intense specificity. So to me, that's what makes an Orlando thing. But I'm interested to hear what Vince has to say. Mm. Yeah, I think I think I think it's exactly what you said, Brian. But I also think he gets a lot of um, he gets a lot of Grant Morrison comparisons, hmm. and um, I'm not going to say I don't see it. Uh, I I love Morrison and I love Orlando. Hmm. Um, I would say where they see. When I think Morrison, I think meta text always. Mm, you know, mm, I think whatever story he's writing, he can put a, he can put heart in a story, he can put science in a story, he can write a beat 'em up. Right. But behind it all, there's a, a wrinkle to it that it's also about the very comic that he's right. writing. Right, right. And I don't get that with Orlando. With Orlando, right, right. with Orlando, I get a lot of heart. He he usually finds a way to give every character every character that deserve that's more than just a peripheral uh, stand in mm-hmm. a little moment in each issue to shine, you know? Mm-hmm. So he doesn't, he's really good about not forgetting about characters. Right. Um, but the way that he is like Morrison, the way that I, the, the, the thing that I absolutely agree with is scale. So like right. Brian, yeah. Brian said like specificity, which I agree with, but also like, Orlando loves escalation. Yes. If you start at like the beginning of Midnighter to what Midnighter <laughs> himself accomplishes becomes, right? by the right. end. Yeah, but he becomes the situation he's put in by the end of that. I don't know how many issues it was in Toto, like tw- 20 some maybe between that and Midnighter and Apollo. Right. Um, from, from beginning to end, it just escalates, escalates, escalates. And every situation right. he gets into is a little bit bigger. And. Uh, Midnighter's way out of it is a little bit more extravagant, you know. Yeah. And I, yeah. and I I feel like that applies. Uh, it's early yet in his Justice League run, right. but I feel like that kind of applies here, where like right away in the first arc, it wasn't just a super villain team that was terrorizing a village. It was the super villain team that had an entire vision of Earth. Right. That they were going to change right. from this village outward, you know, and it was, yeah. it's not merely a, a mustache twirling villain trying to destroy the world. It's this concept that starts as this tiny nugget and has these like right. huge ramifications. And right. I feel like that's what Orlando does really well. And I hope he's listening because I, <laughs> I just flattered him really heavily with that. Description, no. I think, but he deserves it. I love. He's a great writer. No, that's so good. I mean, b- both of what y'all said was so much like, oh, somebody's explaining to me what it is that I like about this. Yeah. Well, can I tell you guys what what this reminds me of a lot? This reminds me of the Jonathan Hickman Avengers a lot so far. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the scale is not. I mean, that was like the biggest scale right. you could possibly have for a right. team book, but like the. To me, the first arc of Hickman's Avengers when there's the uh, the God Garden. No, mm-hmm. no, sorry, God Garden is from uh, Midnighter. But what what, what what was like the, the... <laughs> right the same kind of thing? Essentially, though. the same yeah. kind of thing. Like you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. there were these people who were who were going to uh, just the, these people who are who had this this particular vision of what the world should be. Right, that yeah. that clashes with how the world is. Right. You know, that reminds me a lot of that. Um, right, right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this book, and I like Watanabe's art. Yeah, and uh, I also like how these arcs don't seem to be overstaying their welcome, just kind of shorter arcs, 
is something I'm really enjoying about the book too. Mm-hmm. And and Lobo giving uh, sex tips to Ryan Choi. Yes. <laughs> Man, the fact that Orlando can make Lobo work is uh, it's, it's amazing. It's an accomplishment to itself. No, I yeah, I'm totally feeling y'all on on what you're saying about uh, Orlando's writing in the Watanabe is working really well too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really liking the series and I, I, I don't know, some of this is making me feel there, there was, um, a feeling that I had with Morrison on DC stuff that that's always like, he kind of gets this just like you were saying, but it's like in a way that's like meta, like uh-huh. <laughs> it's like scary how much he gets this and he, he can do it he uh-huh. can be in it, but he can kind of, you know, see it from above. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things about Orlando in terms of like what you guys are saying that he he can do well, you know, just kind of giving every character the treatment, filling out all the details, giving you a sense of the whole, you know, we're, we're going to the corners of the universe here. It just feels very quintessentially DC. Like there's something about it that Steve Orlando feels like a lot of things that are really good about DC. And I don't know if that's just Orlando or 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 is it just that he's really good at knowing where he is. And doing well with that. Like I think about his um, image graphic novel, the, mm-hmm. the Virgil, yeah. and it was something totally different. But it was like I, I know exactly what genre I'm in, and I know how to make it good, you know. And it seems sure. like he's not here too. I think he's something of a. I follow him on Twitter, and um, he's actually one of the few creators that I follow because um, sometimes I just want to get outside of comics <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> And I also don't want to say something that's going to accidentally... I try to not say things that are accidentally going to find their way to a creator. um, Because then you get James Robinson emailing you about something he said. uh, If we ever interview him, I'm going to have to recuse myself from the interview. (laughs) But but, uh, uh, I follow Orlando because I find his enthusiasm for the medium infectious. Uh. Yeah, and, yeah. and he's always on there posting panels from like old comics that he's reading. You know, he's clearly digging yeah, oh, yeah. his, his library, right. and uh, and I, I, you can you can feel the palpable appreciation that he has for comics history and genre and different characters. And I think uh, he, you know, when you say that he can get inside of a genre and and he knows what to do with it, I feel like that's because he has this palpable appreciation that you can just see in action right. through his writing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> well said. Well, that brings us to uh, an interesting book, Jonah Hex, Yosemite Sam, written by Jimmy Palmiotti, illustrated by the former first baseman, Mark Teixeira. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> every time. <laughs> every time. Every time. That's a, that's a sly reference to Never Not Funny, my favorite podcast. There used to be a guy on the show called Mike Schmidt. They would call him the former third baseman. So there we go. Anyway, uh, this is a weird comic. <laughs> these these justice these uh, Looney Tunes DC crossovers have been uh, they've been something. I, I don't I don't quite know how else to describe them. Uh, they've been really different in tone. Like I think it's interesting yeah. that none of them exist in the same universe. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Paul, what do you think of this issue? Oh, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I mean, you know, actually, I think some I've liked some of them. Like some of them have been. No, let me say that. Let me put it this way. I haven't liked any of them in the first six pages or so. 
Okay. Um, it really, it really, like, I have to remind myself two thirds of the way through that, like, oh yeah, this is you know Looney Tunes in DC. <laughs> and then for me, some of them have clicked and worked, and some of them haven't. Um, and I, I don't know. This one just didn't. And maybe I just don't have a lot of attachment to Jonah Hex. Tashera's art is always kind of muddy, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's just hard for me to to warm up to that. But um, you know, like like if you compare the um the whatever the backup the, uh dave alvarez art like there's no comparison which i'd rather stare at yeah you know but uh maybe that's just a matter of fit you know just like same reasons i've never been a, a huge jonah hex guy you know did you read the um the palmiati gray scripted jonah hex series that was a series of just one and dones Mm-mm. That no, I never did. That was uh, this was pre pre Flashpoint. Yeah, I, I I never thought of myself as a Jonah Hex fan, but the art team changed every issue, and they're all one issue stories. Huh. Yeah. And uh, that is something I don't know if that's collected or not. That would be a great collection, though. Mm. Um, writing myself a note to go back and read that actually again because <laughs> it's been a while since I've read that. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not a huge Jonah Hex fan either. I, I I think he has his purpose in DC, and I think he can be interesting. But this was just a really weird... I think this is really weird. <laughs> like, to me, the most effective... Yeah, I'll say that. I feel comfortable saying this. The most effective of the stories so far were the ones where the characters looked and acted the way you would expect them to look and, look and act. Like, for instance, the, super, the Legion of Superheroes, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Bugs was perfectly Bugsy. <laughs> the Legion was super Legion-y. Right. That was great. This is like, this is Foghorn Leghorn walking around in the real world as a circus performer. <laughs> like, it's just not... I say, I say. <laughs> I say, there's a lot of stereotypes coming together here, I say. <laughs> uh, so, I, I don't know, man. Vince, what did you think of this? I finished reading it, and I said, what in tarnation? <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. <laughs> No, I just, it was, these books, like, the further they stray from the way that the Looney Tunes characters are supposed to look, the uglier I think the entire book is, and it made it really, like, this one and and the Lobo uh, Roadrunner one from last week were just really hard for me to get through because I think Teixeira's really... uh, talented but it makes like him write him drawing jonah hex just this like grimy thing Mm. which is fine for jonah hex but then if you throw yosemite sam in there it's (laughs) not you know what i mean like it's not yosemite sam anymore you know yosemite sam is a colorful cartoonish caricature of of you know, Southwestern prospector, whatever, you know, kind of guy. It like, it just, it just, it's not Yosemite Sam when you do it this way. And, um, and I, I kind of feel the same about all these that try to grime up and, and sort of, um, hyper realize these Looney Tunes characters that should be very simple. Um, uh, one big exception to that is coming later. (laughs) (laughs) talk about the next one but um 
We shall come yeah. to Elmer Fudd, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but this one was just, um, oh. Yeah, I I never needed to see a Yosemite Sam where you know somebody's reaching in a bathtub and saying <laughs> and saying, "Ooh, that feels great." <laughs> just, oh, yeah. I just I never needed that. That's the other thing. That's yeah. Oh God. I feel like this had every single Western trope in it, like resting up at the inn. And, right. you know, having a, a prostitute who works at the inn who will give you a bath. Yeah. And, uh, yep. yeah. Yep. They yeah. should have gone full Deadwood if they were. <laughs> and have, had, uh, have him give a soliloquy while he's having his uh, his body scrubbed down in the bathtub. I say, I say, you are a California cop. I'm not, I, well, I'll stop right there. But, uh. There we go. <laughs> uh this brings us to a book that I, in honor of our of our slain co-host, I, I, I Wilkerson the hell out of this book. This is the Hellblazer number eleven, written by Simon, Simon Oliver, illustrated by uh, who did this issue? Uh, uh, Fabry. I can't remember his first name. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. This book is a a, a three ninety nine nap. There is nothing <laughs> in this book to keep me interested whatsoever. Buddy, I can take a nap for free. <laughs> I don't need this. Yeah. I was thinking about this book today because I, I, I think that this is the book that DC publishes that has a character in its name in the title that that character appears the least in the book. <laughs> and that can be done to great effect. Like, you know, one of the things that made like Gotham Central so great is that you never really saw Batman, but you felt his presence everywhere. This isn't even that, where there's, there's you know, like you're feeling Constantine floating around the, the, the edges here. You don't feel that at all. He just disappears for half the book, and it's super boring, and nothing's happening, and thank goodness Tim is coming on in uh, August. Mm. Paul, any thoughts on this book? Nope, same. I, I just feel like there should be a penalty whenever you waste a Tula Lote cover like that. <laughs> that is fair. You should donate to a charity or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, that brings us to uh, Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern Court, number 23, written by Robert Venditti, illustrated by Ethan Van Skyver. Uh, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this, uh, this book. Uh, Paul, I'm interested to hear what you think of this book. Yeah. I mean, if the... Uh, out of all of our books today, if there's one title I reserve the right to Wilkerson, it's... It's this one? It's this one for mostly for Ethan Van Skyver reasons. Good. I, I, <laughs> th- those are good reasons. Yeah. So I don't I don't have anything to say, but I'm interested in what you guys are going to say. Vince? Um It's kind of it's kind of been the same story with this book, really. I when it's Ethan Van Skyver drawing, um I mean, I still read it no matter what. Um but when he's drawing it, something feels different about it, and it's not—it's clearly weaker than the issues that he's not drawing. And it's amazing that shows you the um, strength of the of the artist in comics that kind of goes unheralded sometimes, uh, because a, an artist can put a completely different tone on what I would assume is the same script that any other artist would get from Venditti, right. you know. Right. Mm. Um, that I mean, that's my only takeaway about the book this particular week. I don't think any. I mean, 
Is there anything about the plot that nothing stands out to me as particularly memorable? Brian, is, was there anything? Uh, well, there's there's an interesting bit of John Stewart character building here. So uh, there's there a was? bit, yeah. There, there there's a bit from the last issue that carries over here where there's a prisoner that says they have video footage of a Green Lantern Corps member killing a Sinestro Corps member. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the big mystery here. And John Stewart says, even if he's telling the truth, I'm never going to let him express that. And Stewart has been the most straight shooting of the Green Lanterns for a long mm-hmm. time. And to have him say, essentially, you know, no, I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to allow him to, you know, to, to, basically, I'm going to silence the truth here because it's better for the cores. And that's an interesting Stewart position. And I think the fact that it's Tomar 2 who is the one doing the murdering is also interesting. He's a longstanding mm-hmm. Green Lantern supporting character. Uh, but again, this issue is completely... So much of the emotion is completely undone by Van Skyver's overly posed uh, artwork. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I actually think this is the first time since Jeff Johns walked uh, left Green Lantern that I can say that the Green Lantern universe in general is doing things I hadn't seen it do before, mm. and that's exciting for me. Mm. Even if I don't love all of it, that's you know, that's part of it. Uh, that brings us to the Flash number twenty five. Uh, written by Josh Williamson, illustrated by Carmody D.G. Domenico, Ryan Sook, and Neil Gouge. This is one of the sort of oversized 25th issue uh, installments. And this is essentially the, the Reverse Flash's rebirth origin, which is not all that different from prior installments. Um, I, we're on record as being big fans of, of Carmine DJ Domenico's work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it works so well when you contrast that with Ryan Silk and Neil Gouge art. Like the, the three artists in this book do such different work and it works together so well. Mm. Someone else talk. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. This felt like a really big issue um, and kind of, I don't know, sort of, there were a lot of iconic feeling panels to me, I think. And mm-hmm. that's a credit to uh, Carmenet's art. Um, yeah, man, I mean, it really gave you the entire story of, like, how how Thawne knew uh, Barry and the mm-hmm. sort of arc that their relationship went through. And, yeah, yeah, it was wild. It's, it's a big mm-hmm. issue. It felt It felt pretty essential. Mm. yeah i i think um i really like the reverse flash take here um because as much as i've read you know like i've read the johns i've read the wade i've read a lot of flash (laughs) none of it really i haven't retained any of it very well you know like it's all sort of like a distant memory of being good and fun while it's going on but like nothing i mean stuff emotionally has stuck so so the character is emotionally has you know have stuck and Yobart Don is stuck but I just like I couldn't tell you what are the differences between this reverse flash and you know prior versions yeah and, and that's interesting guys, yeah yeah if you guys can enlighten me on some of that that would be good too <laughs> but um I yeah I don't and I do agree I definitely agree on the um Dijon Domenico art is is like it just really stands out I mean I think it fits pretty well 
together with the Gouge and the Sik here. But um, I like his sort of like, you know, um, I, I, I feel like I can only describe his art with a sound effect, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like a crackle um, that I really like. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, I, I, I have liked the whole Williamson run. And um, but, you know, I, I don't know how what to make of this as a reverse flash story um, in comparison. I mean, I think that the the big difference with this and prior Reverse Flash stories is I think that the amount to which he knows Barry has changed, mm-hmm. right? Vince, isn't this, isn't this the closest they'd ever been, like, in the 25th century? It sure felt like it, but I gotta be honest, I, I couldn't... Re- like, as I was reading this, I was like, is this... How much of a retcon is this? How close mm-hmm. was this? To, you know, mm-hmm. I honestly wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but a hell of an issue. Yeah, uh, really, really, it felt epic. It felt uh, important, and it felt both like celebratory of who the Flash is, but also very true to uh, to what Williamson is doing. And like Paul said, right. I'm a huge fan of this arc, and I think sometimes the problems with these big issues are that they they take you out of the world that the book has been inhabiting to do something bigger. And this didn't feel that way. This felt like mm-hmm. it was, it was taking that, uh, it was taking the tone of the book and just kind of expanding it a little bit for this issue, which is great. Mm. Yeah. Really well great. put. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to detective comics. Number nine, five, nine written by James Tynan on the fourth illustrated by Alvaro Martinez. And I just want to shout out to our pal, Ken Goberson, the third who tweeted the other day that, Alvaro Martinez is doing amazing work on Detective. Mm. And we've said that in the past, but I think we need to say it again because, yes. damn, this guy's doing good work right now. Uh, Paul, what do you think of this issue? Yeah, it's so good that i that's all I looked at. <laughs> 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 because I've been keeping up with Detective, uh, I, I guess maybe three issues, maybe until three issues ago. I was like very um, diligently following the thread okay. of the story. And then ever since the Azrael stuff... Um, I, I don't know. I'm <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I'm gonna have to reread it, you know, to mm-hmm. um ground myself. And that's what I was thinking when I was reading this. Uh, I didn't have time to go back and reread prior issues and see think, now you see how hard it is to read all these comics every week. <laughs> <laughs> respect. Respect yeah. for, for the work you guys do. But yeah, no, that the um Alvaro Martinez and Raul Fernandez, um it, I think they're the best art team on this book um that we've seen. And they're just uh, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Now, uh, Paul, did you read Batman and Robin Eternal last year? Uh, I did for about 11 issues. Okay. I feel like the back half of that book has a lot to do with the Azrael stuff. Okay. And so (laughs) that might might be part of the reason why. Yeah. Uh, Would you agree with that, Vince? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So Um, so now I got to go back and read that. You're saying my homework is even... (laughs) <laughs> sure yeah yeah i'll say that um but no I, I i loved seeing zatanna here she oh. she is a criminally underused dc character yes. uh, especially the last few years and she and bruce's interaction was just really really enjoyable mm. and uh i hope that she shows up 
we need her back on the regular Justice League. I was thinking about this before, how she was on the Justice League Dark in the New 52, and that's fine. But I loved when she was a regular rank-and-file member of the Justice League. It brought such an interesting, different type of character to that team. And we need that back. So, yeah. I'm petitioning I'm, for that. I'm all about the Brutana relationship, by the way. <laughs> Brutana? Okay. Brutana. Rue Ru Brutana. <laughs> Yeah, those scenes were really good. I was, yeah. I, I was thinking Zatman. <laughs> Which sounds like an off-brand Cajun rice company. Zatmana. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Uh, sorry, Paul, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say um, she's a magic character. I think those are always kind of intriguing because, you know, then you have magic. But... You know what I was thinking about as I was reading in this issue one time I forgot what it was but my daughter and I were reading something mm-hmm. you know she's six and then I pointed out the you know backwards Zaytana <laughs> she was like whoa <laughs> I was totally blown she was like oh let me read this whole thing that's fun that's really fun um, one of the things I think is is really good about this book is that Tynan has has managed the cast really interestingly. Like, uh, you know, early on in the book, Tim and Steph were big parts of it, and they've shuffled off now, and we've seen Asriel and uh, Batwing sort of take their place, but it doesn't feel like, it, it still feels like the same book, despite there being different characters showing up here and there. I think that the team has a really distinct tone that has been consistent throughout the book, and I can't wait for the eventual day when all these characters are back together again. It'll be glorious. Yes. Yes. Uh, anything else to add, gents? No. All right. Let's move on to another Shirley Wilkerson book, Blue Beetle, number 10, written by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, illustrated by Scott Collins. Uh this book brought in a character. I got so excited, guys, because I, 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 I Wilkerson this book in the original use of Wilkersoning, which is just I look at the art and don't actually read it. <laughs> um, I got so excited because I was doing that and I saw a speedster that I thought was Bart Allen for a second. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my heart skipped a beat, and then I realized, nope, just the Flash <laughs> from Justice League three thousand. <laughs> because of course. Because of course, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, yeah, you said it all. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't even look at this book this week. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Actually, in honor of uh, coming on to talk to talk to you guys about this, I actually went back and tried because I don't. I I think after the rebirth issue, I you know quit on Blue Beetle, um, partly on you y'all y'all's recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went back and tried, and it just it didn't stick. So, yeah. <laughs> no idea what's going on. Um, I'll also say I think it's really unfair to include half of Dr. Fate at this point because the Khalid, Dr. Fate, was such a great book. Yeah. And the the interaction between Khalid and Kent was such was such an integral part of that book and the two Dr. Fates there. And I don't know why this book isn't doing the same thing, especially because there are the two Blue Beetles here. And it would be a perfect symmetry to have the two of each of them there. But, you know... I but guess this, that, book can't be, this book can't be fun, so... That is true. <laughs> that is true. It's an editorial mandate. Yeah. No um, fun. They must be holding it, holding out, right? I mean, they're holding it out for, you know, whatever I, story reasons. 
I just think that there's there is a a team book out there that's not going to get done. And maybe they'll call it Young Justice. I don't know what they're going to call it. But if you if you had Jaime and you had mm. Khalid and you had Static and you had you know insert three more good characters here, right. that mm-hmm. would be such a fun book of mm-hmm. such unique different voices. But not there. Mm. Um, but let's move on to a book that is really surprising every month, and mm. that is Batman and the Shadow, number three, written by Scott Snyder Steve Orlando, and Steve Orlando, and illustrated by uh, Riley Rosmo. I cannot believe how entangled in Bat mythology yes. the Shadow has become. <laughs> like, that's insane. It's wild. Yeah. Would you say it's yeah. twisted, Vince? It's, twi- it's so twisted. <laughs> it's twisted. I feel damaged after reading this book. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's our goof. That's our bit. Um, <laughs> 10 out of 10, the costumes were tremendous. Exactly, yes. Uh, but no, this this has been... I mean, this is like the platonic ideal for an intra- for an intercompany crossover. Yes. Like, it, yes. it informs both characters. It doesn't really undo anything. Like, Bruce's right. history isn't any different knowing that that the Shadow is more in, you know, intimately involved with it. Right. It's just so much fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I love that platonic ideal of a crossover. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I'm told I've been all in on this series. Um, and when they solicited it, you know, I mostly ignore crossovers for exactly the reason you said, right? No mm-hmm. consequence, right? Yeah. But then, you know, Snyder, Orlando, right now, Riley Rossmo is probably in my, you know, top five Batman artists ever. <laughs> yeah, we know? say like, that all the time. He's so good. <laughs> He's so good. And so uh, I, I definitely jumped at it. Oh, and I'm actually a huge Shadow fan. Like when I was a kid, I used to read a bunch of reprints of Shadow Pulps and listen to the old radio show. So, I mean, I, I haven't actually liked that much Shadow in comics. Um, I think it was like Matt, Matt Wagner stuff was pretty good. But... but you're a huge fan of the Alec Baldwin film. <laughs> of course. Of course. Uh, I'm trying to think of Saturday Night Live Alec Baldwin character to insert, but I'm blanking. Besides the obvious one. this season. <laughs> The Cub Scout leader from Canteen. <laughs> oh, there you go. Canteen. <laughs> now, have you guys ever seen his, his, his sketch of the mimic? Oh, oh yeah, that's the yeah. best. <laughs> <laughs> that, that terrible voice. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> I think that same episode, he does the whole thing where he's a he's a doctor, but he can't pronounce anything. He's like a soap opera doctor. And it's like, <laughs> yes. Something lodged in your anal canal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, this has been SNL chat, and. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, uh, no. Yeah, um, it's good. It's Riley good. Rossmo should should be on the Batman Monthly book, not oh, with Tom King, gosh. but with whenever whenever Tom King is replaced, <laughs> the Orlando Rossmo pairing should mm-hmm. take over that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so good. You know, I I saw the Joker on the cover of this, and I went ah, but more Joker, you know. And I I think the Joker's the Joker reveal was actually last issue. Yes, it was. Right? But I but I like looked at the cover, and I was like, ah, I don't know if I want more Joker. Because I we just got done complaining that he's in like everything and he's yeah. coming back for metal and it's like well coming back he just left like yeah. not that long ago, but you know the way that Rosmo draws him there's a little something I don't know what it is um, there's something about the way everyone draw, draws the draws the Joker smiling the Joker smile is like the iconic thing about him right but the way that Rosmo does it mm. it's it's 
when the Joker is smiling, his big wide smile, the rest of his face could be doing anything else. Mm. Not, not always the same thing, but that smile is the same. And so like there's some where he's got the big beaming smile and his, his eyes look sinister. Mm-hmm. There's, other, there's other times where he's got the, big, the same big smile, but they look, the eyes look surprised or delighted. And there's something about the way that he manipulates the rest of the Joker's face around a mouth that's almost a rictus grin when he's really smiling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that stuck out to me. And it made me think, like, that it's, this is unmistakably the Joker, but I've never seen it quite like this. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, that's wild after 75 years of yeah. Batman or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love his art. I mean, this book has been great, but if you, you know, even if you had no interest in the shadow at all, like just to see him do his thing is yeah, wild. Totally, totally. Absolutely yeah, agreed. Great storytelling too. I feel like they're just laying so many pieces and just like you said, Brian, like they seem to matter. You know, like like this could change everything, you know, if uh Henri Ducard is is just um shadow and stuff like that. Yeah. But but it's still, but like it doesn't screw anything up, you know. It just sort of interweaves them. It's really fascinating kind uh, of way. I loved when the stag said, "I am an honest signal," and Batman said, "So am I." Yeah. Mm. Perfect character beat. So good. Perfect yeah. character beat for both characters. Right. Uh, yeah. Just so good. Yeah, and, and I love that. I love the line where uh, he says. Contemplation of the shadow is Bruce Wayne's most important lesson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and it, it, there's a, a kind of meta to that too, right? Because you know, whatever you know, Kane and, and and Finger or whatever, the shadow is definitely lurking large in the cultural you know background of Batman's creation way back. Yeah, then, you know? so there's oh, a sure. kind of way that comes around too. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, great, great. Great comic. Yeah. Uh, that brings us to Batman Elmer Fudd. <laughs> written by Tom King, illustrated by Lee Weeks. So let me let me start with this, all right? Um, this is by far the most creative of these crossovers. Mm. It does it, it it tries the hardest of any of them. Mm. It doesn't go for the easy way through the story. I'm also a huge fan of Lee Weeks, so yes. I, I will gladly watch him, read him draw any anything. But I really don't know how to feel about this book overall. <laughs> What'd you guys think, Paul? You you wanna? Yeah, you want me to take a stab at it? Sure. <laughs> so I had this thought, and I, I've been really on the fence about the Tom King run. Um, like not uh, on the fence is the wrong phrase because I, I'm really firmly on one side of the fence and then I'm on the other side of the fence, which is me. And I'm sure you guys have been there. It sounds like you guys have been there at times too, which is me wanting to give this writer who we've come to respect, you know, very quickly, like, you know, the benefit of the doubt, but then feeling many things that y'all feel about it. And then I, <laughs> I read this issue. It felt ridiculous, but I agree with you that it was sort of like the most respectable attempt to do something with all of like with really a lot of the characters, right? Yeah. Um, besides Elmer Fudd, and, and to make them fit into a world. And interesting in contrast to what you were saying earlier about 
Brian about these these crossovers, I felt like what he kind of did is to take both Elmer Fudd and Batman and put them both in something totally different, which is kind of a noir, you know, a noir like story, right? Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, and and brought in the right elements with Silver St. Cloud and all that. But the way the whole thing goes, it's almost like it's super, it has to be super tongue in cheek, you know, (laughs) it has to be Tom King really going like, okay, my task is to write Batman and Elmer Fudd, you know? And so like from the opening panel where there's this like, you know, rain, right? The, the Eisner spritz and then the, the poi for me, and the, <laughs> the, the uh, so Elmer good. Fudd, you know, and, and I just think, I just feels like King totally is like, everything is very tongue in key, tongue in cheek. And then I started thinking about it and then I was like, you know, if you kind of read, all of what he's been doing with Batman that way, that he's very tongue-in-cheek about everything, like nothing is meant to be taken seriously. You don't, I don't think you have to like that, but it helps to explain it to me, <laughs> which is really funny because what if Batman Elmer Fudd is the key to unlocking all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <you> know? <laughs> it's the Rosetta Stone of, uh... oh boy. The Wo- Wozetta Stone. The, the Wozetta Stone, yeah, there we go. <laughs> But, you know, he just goes so hard at it in this that you just I like I kind of got it like I was kind of feeling it because it was that like, I don't know if I'm feeling it if that's Batman, you know, if that's like, you know, a marriage proposal and all that stuff. But um, it was working for me here. Yeah, absolutely. This is the best Batman related thing that Tom King has (laughs) ever done. I'm on I'm being 100 percent honest here, too. Like um, we've. Oh man, where to start? Um, we've talked on the show a few times about how we felt like um, Tom King's Batman is <clears throat> what if Adam West's Batman and Frank Miller's Batman were the same bat, like the same person, mm-hmm, you know? Right. And we've had so much trouble reconciling that. Uh, in a way that you know, <clears throat> tonally, tonally, I can't square that circle when I'm right. reading that comic. Right. And I think what I've when I've in thinking about this issue, I, I think I'm thinking of it the same way that you are, Paul. But you put it so eloquently when you said it's the Rosetta Stone for, for or it's <laughs> the way to it's the way to understand his run. You're mm-hmm. right. I don't think it for me. It's not going to make his run on Batman any better. Mm-hmm, right. But, but I understand that like he's treating certain aspects of it as if they're patently absurd. Right. right. Problem is that I can't square that with the moments where he makes Batman into this like psychologically fucked up yeah. like ball of angst and like it's so like he is so in his own head in yeah. Tom King's mm-hmm. run and just so twisted up into this knot, mm-hmm. and that's the part that I can't. That's the part that I can't like he whenever he's around like he hasn't had very many moments where he's with the extended family. But there were a couple scenes earlier in the series where he's there. He's out for burgers with the Robins. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's just so like angry and mean to them the entire time. And I'm just thinking like this is a miserable dude. And yet at the same time, you want to sell me that part of this book is absurd and funny and trying to be ridiculous. And I can't, for whatever reason, I can't make that happen in my mind 
No, yeah, I feel you. Yeah, I feel but, you know, it's funny yeah. you mentioned that, Vince. I just realized this now. I'm pretty sure you're right. That's the first scene in Rebirth of the Bat Family together in King's book, which is when they're having the burgers. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first scene of the of the family together in the New Fifty Two in Snyder's book? Weren't they like getting ready for a picture, a photograph? They yeah, they they were all like in tuxes because they were going to a. Uh, some sort of like Wayne Foundation function or whatever, but then the end of that issue ended with all of them watching a movie together and like sharing a bowl of popcorn, mm-hmm. and just like you just saw the love between Bruce and his surrogate sons, mm-hmm. and you know we don't see that at all in King's Run, right? right. Yeah, so. no, yeah. Um, but then you know, coming back to Batman Elmer Fudd, which seems ridiculous <laughs> to even say, um. Just from the moment I read Pway for Me, <laughs> I I said this is gonna own. This is this is gonna rule so much, um, and it did. And he's throwing like basically everything that the other writers didn't use in their comics. Every character that they didn't use, right. he threw in here. Michigan J. Frog. CBR <laughs> annotated this. Oh God, I, I'm gonna have to read that. I don't often do that, but I'm going to have to. Uh, Porky the bartender, um, just fantastic. Like, and and it's I'm almost breaking my own like rule about what I like about comics because um, if you were to ask me before, with this issue aside, what the best Looney Tunes DC crossover was, I would have said the Legion one that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. With Bugs Bunny because it hewed most closely to uh, Bugs Bunny as we know him. Right. Th- this comic totally breaks that rule, and and but it did something interesting. It right. did well. That's just it. It did something really interesting and ridiculous. This book is stupid. Like it's <laughs> it's so dumb, but it's um it's amazingly dumb. Like it's nice. dumb in all the best ways. Like it is so dumb to make. Elmer Fudd into a noir character that's right. doing this like gritty Frank Miller dialogue like my my city is a toy wit you know like <laughs> just you know but but th- that absurdity comes around and it and it works for me somehow it's and, dumb um, in the way that a like 120 in the morning Conan sketch from yeah. like 2001 uh, was dumb just oh, like just weird shit happening, and but but it's sold with such ferocity that you yeah. have to respect it. That's yeah. similar Absolutely. to this. Absolutely, yeah. and like at one point he says, "Your succotash is going to be suffering." <laughs> yep, like that, that one too in my notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just like, and and then the the essential part that I don't like about Tom King's Batman is missing here, which is that. Um, Batman's not like a bundle of joy in this comic, but he's not this like you don't spend enough time with him or get into his head enough right. to see him as this like angry, balled up right. Right. id, you know? Yeah. And like um so I can reckon I can then reconcile that the rest of this comic is very absurd. And then it, it helps to also have a backup where Batman is playing a central role in the Duck season, wabbit season, right. mm-hmm. you know, bat season, gag, and he's he's being kind of lumpy and silly too. And so, um, man, this was good. And mm. just Bugs Bunny as this like dopey, hard drinking, <laughs> g- 
criminal guy. You know, just like, oh, man. There were a lot of moments with bugs that were really, really well written. Like, you know, took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. You ever been to Albuquerque, Bugs? No, yeah. have you? Like, just, you know, stuff like that. Just really, really well done. Yeah. 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 Yeah, he seems like the kind of scheming. Like, you know, at first you're like, how is this Bugs? You know, besides the teeth. Uh-huh. And then you kind of, the whole thrust of the story about him being this kind of scheming, sneaky person, but in a way that fits within the, the genre that he's using. Um, it's totally Bugs. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of my thoughts, and uh, agree with you, Brian, that the uh, Lee Weeks art art is incredible. Like, you know, he's got. Um, I I wrote down like this is Wally Wood, and Mazzuchelli. You know, there's wow. like yeah. this this um the way that the you know like even Bugs is is sort of characterized, and then but then there's these moments with Batman and and the cape when he's like soaring down and dodging a punch and stuff that just or the bullet dodging the bullet in that great moment when he does the very Elmer Fudd move of uh, turning the the rifle around yep. but then he's shooting at him very Elmer Fudd but then like t- turned around for this story uh, as a cool you know noir move or something um, but yeah just the art is so good it just and it it just made me and I I heard you guys talking about David Finch last week with Greg. He seems like a super nice guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> his art is respectable, but it, like, man, like I, maybe if this art was there to make everything come across differently all this time with King stuff, maybe I'd feel differently about it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Absolutely. Uh, do we have anything to say about Batman Beyond? I didn't didn't read it. Bernard Chang's art continues to be good. Continues to be good. Yeah, actually, I'm going to say something. Go for it. Um, <laughs> I had a moment when I was reading, preparing for this. I'm going to jump for this episode. This is my hot take of the week. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to jump for this episode. I'm going to jump on Jurgen's Island. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that it's, you know, so I actually went and, and I had started um, Batman Beyond at the beginning and I think I jumped off pretty quick but I went back and reread it and I kind of liked it and <laughs> I think a lot of it was Bernard Chang and also um Marcelo Maiolo you know the colorist yeah he's I, I'm a big Maiolo fan totally good um but and so I, I actually it kind of hit me like it, it was working for me and I like a few theories about why like probably 80% of it is Chang and, and Maiolo in the art um, the dialogue is a net negative for sure. It's like, <laughs> it's not shway. Um, <laughs> well played. Um, but well played. I, I maybe my, my other, the other part of my theory is that, um, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty familiar story, but a storyline, but maybe because I don't know Batman beyond well. And I think what they seem to be doing here is to make him or make this world matter, right? By connecting it to the familiar, you know, it's like a lot of carryover intrigue because there's Damien and Bruce's relationship, right? You know, and 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 Rachel Gould and stuff like that, and um, even that, even the cliffhanger on the last page of this issue kind of was working for me, you know. And I and I, but I wondered a little bit if if what was making it work for me, which is to connect it to, yeah, there's way too much Joker and all that kind of stuff, but like, but to connect it to a little bit more to sort of familiar Batman. Um, is actually a little bit of a betrayal of what Batman Beyond is supposed to be. You know, like if having this much attachment to pre- present day Batman makes it less beyond, 
you know like it's a good Bat- point yeah batman kind of beyond you know like just barely beyond <laughs> um so yeah but i, I actually i'm, I'm kind of glad that i think um talking to you guys about it i was like ah i should read it and really kind of give it a shot and i think this time around i was i was probably more positive about it than than i i thought i would be I mean that's good i don't want people to just take our opinions at face value <laughs> i want people to challenge us you know, for for me, it's I I was never the world's biggest Batman Beyond fan. That's not to say I didn't like it. It's just it didn't particularly resonate with me. But I just feel like with so much of Jurgen stuff, and we're gonna get to this in a little while. I have a hot take for you guys in a little while. Uh, Jurgen's is just so obsessed with being referential to the past mm-hmm. that I feel like he's not telling super original Batman Beyond stories because he's too busy telling his version of past stories. Right, yeah. Does that make I sense? Can totally, I can totally see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, let's go to Batgirl. Batgirl number th- uh, 12, written by Hope Larson, illustrated by Eleanor Car- Carlini, who's becoming like one of DC's go-to uh, fill-in artists. We're seeing Carlini pop up a lot. And I think she did some great work on this issue. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed this issue. I'm loving Hope Larson's Batgirl run. Yeah, definitely. Vince, what'd you think? Yeah, she's uh speaking of Carlini, um remember when like during the New Fifty Two we would have a lot of fill ins and they were like lot, most of them were like bad or like subpar. Mm-hmm. But when Carlini fills in, I'm never disappointed. It's, Agreed. It's a really great fill in. Um and I feel like DC has procured, you know, a handful of fill in type artists. Um, that could easily springboard into full-time jobs, and mm-hmm. I'd be totally happy with it. They've really um, raised the floor. They have yeah, in yes. in that way. You know, it's just it, there's nobody doing that terrible fill-in work we've seen so many times in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as far as Hope Larson goes, like, yeah, I'm 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 totally. She could write Bad Girl for, you know five years and that'd be great yeah. um this this story was kind of a one and done and it was a little it was like a little weirder as far as like um there's a parallel dimension involved and yeah the... there's like weird weird sci-fi and like almost <laughs> um supernatural that you don't often see with Batgirl, but <laughs> there's there's certainly room for it like it didn't feel false it just felt um very different from everything else, and it shows. It shows mm. that Hope Larson's willing to do a lot of different things with the character, mm. um, r- rather than uh, treat her as just this pure street level. You know, she she she. It, it, after reading this, I now think that anytime I pick up an issue of Hope Larson's Batgirl, mm. I don't know what I could be. I could be getting anything, and I, right. I like that feeling. Right. That's why we read comics. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it a lot, too. Um, I'm definitely with you guys on Carlini, who I didn't know before, actually. Um, so I, I guess I'd missed all those fill-ins that she did. Um, I, I definitely had a thought while I was reading this, and actually uh, reading a lot of the books like like you guys do. I have, by the way, huge, huge admira- admiration for your discipline <laughs> in reading the whole line. <laughs> I actually think, I, I think that's a kind of reading that, like, 
um, is insane. You, it's <laughs> it's destructive. Like, it's few people do it. Um, I I can't imagine how you you know maintain jobs, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really I think it's a very interesting way to read because so much of what makes superhero comics cool is the sense of the universe, you know, the multiverse, the line. So, um, so that's really cool. But anyway, I had the thought as I was reading all these that. I, maybe for the first time in a super long time, I am more up on DC artists than Marvel artists. Like that—that's tip for me. You know, like I more yeah. reliably come to a DC book and like the art than a Marvel book, and it hasn't been that way for me for a, a, a pretty long while, it, which uh, is it's saying a lot. So Carlini did the Batgirl annual from a couple weeks ago, as well mm-hmm. as <laughs> this issue. She's done a bunch of Doctor Who comics for Titan. And she did a couple of issues of Green Arrow. She's done one, two, three, four issues of Green Arrow so far this year. Right. And she actually did a couple of the um, Batgirl of Burnside fill-in issues as well. Okay. So she's mm-hmm. been around for – she did actually the last arc of Batgirl of Burnside, it looks like. Oh. Oh, yeah. That's where I jumped off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think <laughs> a lot of people that. did. Um, but, yeah, yeah I so mean, that's so, – so she – you know, she's not doing everything for DC, but that's, you know – it's. Right. And I think that both Green Arrow and Batgirl have been great examples of different artists with different styles working really well together. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I love that Otto Schmidt stuff. Oh, man. But I think um, that's interesting to hear because um, one of the things I've liked about Hope Larson is I think that when she started this run, there was this big looming Burnside behind her. You know, like like that Burnside Batgirl was such a – big thing like such a departure and and you know sort of caught a certain audience and maybe another audience you know didn't catch that um i felt like it was really smart what she did in the first arc which was to just extract her you know so that she was believably the same character but then you know taking you to asia you know like yeah and it it sort of like cleansed the palate you know and I think what's interesting about this issue is, that, you know, she's already with the whole Wild Goose story, um, the, the Wild Goose chase. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> she's definitely brought her back to Burnside, and this is a very Burnside story. But it's sort of like it, it's there's no sense that we're like judging Larson's story against that Burnside run. You know, right. like this is clearly hers now. And I think that was really smart um, and still plays that way in this issue. I don't know if there's another book that DC is publishing right now that is more the composite of the last three or four years than this book is. Hmm. Yeah. Like, it really does build on what happened. I guess I can make the argument that Superman, to a certain degree, does as well. (laughs) But I don't think it's a surprise that those are two really, really solid books because they're, (laughs) they're using... Like you said before about the way that we are reading these, they're using superhero comics the way the superhero comics are meant to be used. Right. Where everybody just gets a turn writing the book, but there's not there's not one definitive vision right. of yeah. it. So uh, and that brings us sadly to our last comic of the week, which is Action Comics number nine eight two, written by Dan Jurgens, illustrated by Jack Herbert. Uh so my hot take, which I'll, I'm just gonna just gonna put out there, has <laughs> nothing to do with this issue, but I think I've solved who Mister Oz is. Oh, very hot, man! You buried the lead. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's kind of a joke. <laughs> I wish Zach were alive to see this. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of a joke here. So, 
I mentioned before that Jurgens loves nothing more than referencing Jurgens. Yes. And like if you look at the crew of villains assembled here, it is it is essentially the Jurgens uh the Jurgens East. <laughs> yes, it is. It is the most Jurgens that could possibly be. And so I think that Mr. Oz is uh Connell. Yeah. He's he's the only uh he's the only Jurgensy character that hasn't been brought back yet. So <laughs> You did it. Yeah, he's Connell. So there we go. Anyway. That's and you know what? You know what? I think that's my favorite of all the possibilities. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> no, really. I really you know, we've talked about this before. Whether it's um Adrian Veidt, who I was kind of skeptical of all yeah. along, or whether it's that was uh, the faint, right? That that was the kind of fake out. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, Superboy Prime. You know. Um, I think at one point I said Pa Kent, kind of half jokingly. <laughs> I think um, we had also talked about maybe uh, was it Earth Two Luthor? Yes. Yeah. Yep. That was another one. Uh, but I think out of all of those possibilities, I think Khan's my favorite. Yeah. I, I mean, that... to be fair, he would kidnap both Doomsday and Tim Drake. Yeah, yeah. Like the, that, kind of, that kind of fits in line there. So, oh man, I think you did it. <laughs> I and hope I, so. Yeah, and that will that explains my relationship with Dan Jurgens comics to a T, um, including this particular issue, because I think that's such a good idea that's going to be written so underwhelmingly. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like th- this issue too, number nine eighty two, like. I thought about it and I'm like, I, I kind of like all the stuff that's happening in his comics. I just can't stand the way he writes. <laughs> and I think that's the, I think that's the problem. This again, I don't know why we have to keep letting the villains state their intentions. Right. Everybody knows what they want to do. Right. I don't know why Jurgens every week has to make sure people are ex- explicitly clear on the subtle differences between what the Eradicator <laughs> wants and what Zod wants. They both want Superman dead. That's the easiest way. Just go about it that way. Yep. Hmm. Ugh. Um, I will say I love the idea of the super family uniting at the end and, like, right. blocking off Clark's body. The fact that it's, you know, Lana and John Henry and Keenan and Kara and Lex. That's so great. Yeah. That's exactly what I want out of a Superman comic. Yeah. Except Keenan looks super roided up. He I does. What... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey. I don't, sorry, I'm not saying much. I'm just actually trying to suppress my laughter because I keep thinking about that. Um, when you you guys went off on Mr. Oz, that one episode, and uh, just were riffing. I just... <laughs> So funny. I don't remember. What, I I honestly don't remember what we were talking about. I don't know, but it went out for a really long time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like us. Yeah. Yeah. I. What if What if Mr. Oz were Doctor Oz and what? Oh if, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. We were. It was. It was four twenty, right? <laughs> I think it was four twenty. Um, <laughs> That belongs in the best of DC three cast archive. <laughs> uh, if someone out there wants to edit that together, I will pay you five American dollars. The best five, of DC three cast episode. Five hot ones. Our greatest president. Um, <laughs> can I? Uh, I can go on about this issue if you want me to. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I the the thing that bothers me about uh, Jurgen's writing, and it's, it's kind of what you said where, you know, all these, the villains have to explain again why they're doing what they're doing, even though we 
know that already and we know who they are it's 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 the it's the way that Jurgens wastes time in that fashion you know and he does mm. it again in this issue by the way did I don't know maybe you said this but he does the kneel before Zod thing again oh god we need to stop that <laughs> again we, we complained about that last week cuz we did some yeah. Yeah. but anyway um uh uh just just the way like we saw help was coming for superman last issue and so like an economical writer would have that help arrive this issue <laughs> but jurgens we've talked about this before loves to reuse a cliffhanger from one issue to the next <laughs> and like essentially do it twice right. so like towards the end of the last issue we were seeing uh uh, Keenan Kong and and Kara get the the signal. Get the beacon, yeah. You know? And then, literally, we see that again in this issue. And the the final page cliffhanger is they've all showed up to defend Superman, which was essentially the exact same cliffhanger. Well, the cliffhanger from before is that he was blind, but yeah. you know, kind of one of the final two page stingers was that the the team was being alerted. You know, yeah. And I just like economical writers can do that in from one issue to the next but for some yeah. reason Jurgens takes three to to do that yeah. or is going to take three by the time the next issue comes along and like he's almost the worst person at dc that you could hire to do a <laughs> twice monthly book you sure. know um i don't think he's i don't think he's necessarily their worst writer and i think like I think a lot of his ideas are pretty solid, even if he leans on the crutch of history. Mm. Um, I, I, I feel like I feel like all the super men and women teaming up to take on the Superman Revenge Squad is mm. a great idea that comic fans who like Superman would love to see. Mm. Especially like because the this like these particular characters could never have existed before. There was no Lex Superman. There was no Lana right. Superwoman. There was no Keenan Kong. Like this is the first time these characters are ever going to be able to team up. Yeah, it should absolutely. be special. And so, like, like I love that idea, and I do love seeing them all come together on that final page. You know, but like, mm -hmm. the technical act of writing for Jurgens just doesn't agree yeah. with me because he just is too verbose about it. He's too yeah. like plotting. I think. Yeah. And um, so, so that's kind of the struggle I have with this book because I I dig a lot of the ideas, and if it does end up being Connell as Mister Oz, I dig that idea so much. <laughs> I want to see that so badly. But I, I might have to write this a bit as, as an editorial for next week. You might have to, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, can <laughs> I, I can I? Uh, I absolutely. mean, just kind of in response, I, this is where I'm out on Jurgen's Island. Um, which is a Bill Simmons podcast reference, by the way. I mean, I'm, sure I'm, the, I'm sure I'm the only one defending, but you know, I, and and not not that this is to make try to convince you guys to to like it, but I was thinking about it a little bit. My feelings reflecting yours exactly, and I was thinking about that Lois and Clark series. Is it was it Lois and Clark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and how we liked that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, me too. I liked it too, and it just felt like like a kind of a throwback. It kind of reawakened for me, a, a Superman love from a prior era, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so I started to think like, okay, well, his writing is his writing. But if you take all of this as a, a kind of like nostalgia trip for old fans, 
there's <laughs> so there's a line in this issue. The squad you've assembled here is ready to take down Superman. Let's get to it. You know, which is like exactly <laughs> yeah. how you're playing. Like, a, like, what? Why did you like when you were typing that? Didn't you have the thought like, no, don't write that. You know, <laughs> but then I started. You know, I I was thinking about. I had actually just read some of um, Josh Bayer's all-time comics at Fantagraphics. Uh-huh. Right. And then, you know, like I'm one of these people who's like un- unironically enjoyed like Fletcher Hanks, you know, like old, old stuff. So if I'm going to enjoy if I'm going to have some respect for that, I'm going to admit to myself the possibility that somebody went up to Dan Jurgens and said, you know, we want you to come back and write action comics. And he replied, like, really? Like, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of out of touch you know and then like i don't know who it was like eddie eddie Briganza or whatever is like no no, no that's exactly what you want <laughs> like, like, like we, we want something that's so old that it's kind of like retro now you know and i i think when that kind of clicked in my head for me i was like oh can i just kind of go along for this ride then you know and then suddenly like <laughs> how ridiculous and how cheesy it was was just like okay maybe i'm supposed to just embrace this you know um that doesn't mean i'm not irritated like by the one millionth john take your mom and run you know yeah, and, yeah. right <laughs> but I, I i guess it just made me feel a little bit like okay if i can get myself in the mindset that i'm reading something that's like very much trying <laughs> you know action you know whatever action uh, uh what is this nine nine eighty two continuous with action 850 you know or something uh-huh. like that then maybe i can have a little more uh, I guess latitude for some of the the more irksome parts of this. I think that's a really uh, well said and and valid way to look at it for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think if you accept that it's it's going to be that style and it's just never going to be, you know, Jurgens will Jurgens will never write in sort of the quote unquote. Uh, modern, right. modern style. You know, mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. can accept that and understand that, there are good ideas here. Mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. I do, I do get so wrapped up in how yeah. much I hate the 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 actual prose. You know, <laughs> yeah. To me, it's it's less about the old fashionedness, which I am totally fine with. Again, like mm-hmm. I almost wish that he wrote it, like <laughs> you know, like how he wrote the Newsboy Legion. In like the the death of Superman era, like I don't I don't mind that stuff. It's to me, it's just that he is like the most decompressed writer this side of Bendis. You know, like mm. just just it mm. takes all of his arcs are twice as long as they need to be. Right. We were talking before about Justice League of America, how they just told this like they introduced a brand new character, a, a right. new setting in the DC universe. They set him up as one thing, had him take a twist, and then come back around the other side in right. two issues. You know, right. whereas this will be a, a nine-issue arc that will have four pages of actual story in it, you know? Right, so right, right, right. That's yeah. my big problem. Yeah, I mean, I think, it. you know, like, a lot of what you guys are talking about, like, contemporary comics, is, like, contemporary comics know how to write moments. They know how to write scenes, you know? Like, yeah. they know how to um, make a, a make drama by showing, not telling. And, you know, old comics, you know, had plot you know like everything is very <laughs> plot driven and uh-huh. so characters explained themselves and their motivations and the plot and i think that there's a lot of that going on and yeah it's totally frustrating to read yeah so, yeah 
Well, Paul, before we get out of here, can you give the folks the the elevator pitch for your podcast? I know you did this last time you were on, but now that the yeah. show has started in earnest and we're three episodes deep, tell us about the show. Yeah, for sure. Well, the comic syllabus, well, mm, I, maybe I'll put it this way. I like a lot of comics podcasts. There are a lot of comics podcasts. <laughs> and so I was sort of like, what what would I contribute? But, you know, the, the thing that I like most about you guys is that um, – I mean, you spend some time with news and gossip and stuff like that, and I like the sense of humor y'all have. But I love that you get in the weeds. I mean, it's kind of like the thing about Steve Orlando that we were talking about that we like, right? Mm-hmm. That you kind of like, um, as, as I like to say, you just really kind of dig deep with the material. And whenever when I talk to when I listen to Greg and Mike um, talk on Robots from Tomorrow, I like it when they do that too. And so I just I I guess I wanted to do that, and so that's what the comic syllabus tries to do is to take a lot of different kinds of comics and whatever kind of like closer reading it might warrant um try to do that and i try to do that with you know with other folks um sometimes they're comics academics or sometimes they're multiversity folks um i have a i have one with a creator ethan young who did the um nanjing the burning city and um battles of bridget lee graphic novels uh with dark horse um that's this week's episode so yeah so that's kind of what the comic syllabus is about which is try to Read widely and dig deep. That's the short motto. <laughs> and uh, Paul has been trying to convince uh, a couple of us to come on his podcast. And oh, I, we'd love it. I think we just narrowed down my book, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've uh, what? What do we? Um, Southern Bastards. Yeah, the the first volume or two of Southern Bastards. Yeah, we're gonna get deep awesome. into in in a few months. So keep an ear out for that. And uh, I have to say, you know. Paul came into the multiversity world because he sent Mike and Greg a few emails and they were mm-hmm. like, this guy's emails are so thoughtful and well-considered. <laughs> we have to bring him on board because if he puts that much thought into an email, then he's going to put, you know, so much more into, <laughs> into a column or a podcast or something. And, and it's been totally true. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, check out his podcast. It's great. It's really, yeah, I'm very proud of the work he's doing for multiversity. That's really kind of you. Thanks for your support. Man. Of course. And, uh, as always, you can find us three uh, chuckleheads on uh, Twitter. I am at Brian Needs an App. I'm at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. Uh, and I'm at Tuply, T-W-O-P-L-A-I. And uh, Zach will be back next week. Back Yay. from the dead. <laughs> we, we have a shaman working on him right now. And, uh, and I'll, be, I'll be dying. So. <laughs> yes. And next week we lose Vince to, to the great beyond. Right. So... Uh, but he'll be back after that too. We, we, we're like we're like DC Comics themselves. Characters die all the time, but no one's gone for long. So uh, until next time, R.I.P. Zach. Good night, guys.